Hello, everybody. This is Waiting here. Just here to wish you a happy holidays. As you know, John and I are taking the week off from recording new shows. We will be back on Saturday covering WWE's Day One event. But we're not going to leave the space completely empty here. Uh, Over the course of the week, you'll be hearing different audio. On Thursday, our friends at Up Next will be covering AEW Dynamite's New Year Bash. Or is it New Year Smash? I forget. On BD Elite, Friday, I believe John and WH are going to return for a new edition of Post Pro Res, along with a ton of fresh articles on the website right now. But today, we wanted to showcase one of our favorite podcasts from our Patreon this year. An episode of our retro review, Rewind Away covering Wrestlemania 6. This is the first time we've ever reviewed this show, John and I, and we even brought along Dan Lebransky at the end to detail some of his memories from attending the event live. So hope you guys enjoy that. Also, quick mention, Boxing Week sale at store.postwrestling.com, 20% off all t-shirts until January 1st. So enjoy that, and enjoy Rewind Away. Because we're just getting started! Number 81, I'm John Pollock, along with Waiting on today's menu, WrestleMania 6, Ultimate Warrior Challenging Hulk Hogan. How are you, Way? Doing all right, John, yeah. This is on the menu, this is, um, God, feels like it's 31 years ago? Well, I was going to say more of a 14-course menu (laughs) than I think a succinct, you know, um, entree um yeah this was this you know i hope you're hungry john there's a lot yeah to eat i was i was pretty full by entree the giant and haku breaking up and that was only the second match of the night very good okay we're gonna move on today's show one that we have apparently never reviewed in our history uh, was selected by espresso executive producer Caesar Silvera, who has kept his choices to a very Toronto-centric theme because his last choice for a review was the big event in August of 1986. And on that show, we were joined by Dan the Mouth Lebransky. And for this show, we are going to be joined a little later by Dan Lebransky because when it came to mid-80s, early 90s, if it was a WWF event in the city... The mouth was there, so we will chat with Mr. Lebransky about his live experience 31 years ago going to the Skydome and 
his reaction, or at least his observation of children's reactions to Hulk Hogan losing on the subway ride home. Oh, that's what I want to hear about. I mean, uh, the real stories. Yes. Yeah. I want to hear about mouth's uh, experience watching the show with kids crying. That's, that would be great. Uh, but first why we actually, uh, well, Caesar can't appear on the show, but he did uh, send us a message that he wanted us to read. So why don't we get to that right now? Cesar says, hi guys, first off, I want to apologize for picking such a lengthy show. I've been listening to you guys since day one, and I'm surprised that you never reviewed WrestleMania 6. So since it is WrestleMania season, and since we are based in Toronto, after a decade plus of you guys reviewing shows, what better time than now to finally review WrestleMania 6 from Toronto and just get it out of the way? I want to thank everyone who took the time to leave feedback on the show. I read them all and really enjoyed hearing about all your memories of WrestleMania 6. I realize that a lot of the patrons of post-wrestling don't have memories of this era, so it's good to hear from the ones who do. Lastly, I want to thank you guys. I have great memories of seeing you guys at O'Grady's back in the day and also seeing you guys at the movie premiere of Monster Brawl at the Underground Cinema at Spadana Avenue. Okay. I, think you were, I think you were there to interview Kurgan, Jimmy Hart, and Kevin Nash. Uh, I have vague recollection of that. Particular I don't know if my if my goal was to be able to uh yeah th- those people were there I, I do I do remember that I do remember going to that screening and I guess I interviewed all of those people in that order I think a, a priority Kurgan Jimmy Hart and then Kevin Nash Kurgan it's it was not uncommon like I would uh occasionally like he'd be uh like wandering not wandering but just walking around in the streets of Toronto and he definitely would stand out at times when he was here in in town. Uh, he says, I want to thank everyone at Post Wrestling. It's been a tough year with the pandemic, but with all the content on the site, it helps the time go by. So thank you very much, Cesar, for your choice and for your uh, message. All right. So WrestleMania 6, Sunday, April 1st, 1990. We're going to get right into things. The Toronto Sky Dome. This was a brand new structure that had been erected for the year prior. It had opened in 1989. Do you remember your first visit to the Skydome way? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I believe I do. And for me, it must have come because I, I, my family came to Canada not long prior to this building being built. But would I have had an excuse? Because of go? the Skydome? Oh, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like, like yeah. Way, pack yeah. up. We're moving. Care. <laughs> Communist China. Uh, or Retractable a roof. Building. A retractable roof, yeah, got us, yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know if we would. I was not a baseball fan by this point, so it, I, I wouldn't have much of a uh, reason to. I think uh, you know my first memory of actually being inside the Sky Dome was just simply walking in because I think my family probably just had a day out. We're probably visiting the CN Tower or something, and like the door was open. I guess we all walked in, and Ed Sprague was doing this like, I think it was like the Blue Jays kids club thing okay yeah some sort of little league like you know meet and greet deal and i just walked on the field and i got my head spray got no away i feel like i I might have mentioned this first uh before this but. was on a game day this was like prior to a game no, or was this like an off day it mu- must have been prior like he was probably practicing or something and like okay he was signing autographs and got my head spray autograph but this was wouldn't have been until like 92 91 maybe I think that'd be before, like Ed Sprague was, I mean, he became a regular, like everyday player in 93. 
because Gruber was still your third baseman throughout that 92 World Series win. But I think Sprague was still on the bench for them. He was actually a catcher who then converted to become the third baseman for the Jays. So, yeah, it could have been 92, 93 in in that stretch. Perhaps, yes. So, uh, anyway, so that's my first recollection. What about yours? I went to my first Jays game. It was uh, July of 1992, and when me and my brother, like, we had gotten pretty significantly into baseball at this point, and I I was, like, a big Blue Jays fan. My brother's favorite team, though, was the Oakland A's. He was a huge Jose Canseco fan, which I guess I won out in the long run there of uh, teams to support, or at least figures to support. And so when our last day of school... We got home, and my dad got us baseball tickets to see the Jays and the A's, and I was just so ecstatic. And we went. It was like middle of July, and my, your first time walking into that, I mean, I'm eight years old at the time. It's a pretty magnificent sight when you walk in there for the first time. Um, oh, it's still it quick, I don't know if it still has that. I mean, it, it really depends. The Sky Dome is, to me, two separate stadiums. When the roof is open... It's pretty incredible. Like, it it really is a marvel that they had this retractable roof. And on a nice day, it looks incredible. When you are going to a Jays game, and I'm talking like that, those 97, 98 years where this team was just in the dumps and it's a closed roof with a third of the seats full, it feels like you're in a gigantic, the lar- the world's largest Costco. That's what it feels like you're inside of. And it's a pretty un unattractive building inside. But when it's packed during those big years, it's it's incredible, I think, to be in there. When the team's good, everything's good. That's it. It really... I don't know if the building is enough to overcome a, a poor team, but uh, that would be my first memory. So in July of 1992, going there, I was definitely not at, at this particular wrestling event, nor was I following wrestling in April of 1990. I would have been six years old at the time, as were you. So this was... Uh, yeah, Be, uh, outside of my, my following of this. So this was a, an event that came and went in my life. Yeah, likewise. Um, I, I didn't watch wrestling until probably like around 90, <laughs> after my chance encounter with Ed Sprague, I think that was also my, uh, uh entry into the world of professional wrestling. So I, well, there you go. All listeners yeah. have Ed Sprague to thank for, for your weekly doses of waiting. So coming into this show, of course, everything is built around Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior, a rare all-babyface main event uh, match, which we'll look at how this show performed. Uh, They're coming off of the Royal Rumble, which had done 260,000 buys in January, and then they did a special on the main event on a Friday night in February, where the idea was to have Hulk Hogan versus Randy Savage, a rematch from last year's WrestleMania, and they were going to have Mike Tyson as the special referee. And this was going to be a big deal on NBC. But uh, two weeks earlier, Mike Tyson gets floored by Buster Douglas in Japan at the Tokyo Dome. Tyson pulls out, and they get Buster Douglas on short notice to be the special enforcer for this match. And it ends up doing a 12.8 rating on NBC. So a pretty big special that they have in the lead up to WrestleMania. And for this show at the Skydome, they ended up doing 550,000 buys on pay-per-view. A good figure, but definitely down from the year prior with Hogan and Savage. And 
it would equal the amount of buys they would do at SummerSlam later this year, which would have Warrior and Rick Rude in a cage match and Hulk Hogan going against Earthquake. And I would say, wait, like this was, I mean, again, this was still, they did, you know, a very healthy gate here, three and a half million US. Um, they filled the Skydome. It was, uh, you know, over almost 62,000 paid and over 64 in the building. But on pay-per-view, I mean, this did not have the same spark as Hogan Savage. And I think like this goes to the WWF's concern about two baby faces. It, it isn't always the strongest drawing program when you don't have that dynamic, at least at this time period. Do you think anything had to do with maybe just a, a general kind of a, you know, uh, decrease from the peak of wrestling's popularity during this era? I think it's definitely closer to the, the, the downward slope. Like this is not the, like if you're looking at that post 85 period where the company is on fire, 1990 is when it's starting to level off, but it's still pretty healthy. It's not until 1991 that you really start to see the, uh, the diminishing numbers uh, occur, but yeah, there is something to that as well. I think that you're sort of like, look at this. You've largely had the title on Hogan, uh, Aside from that year with Savage, but Hulk Hogan has been your top guy for all of these years at this point in this role. And I think that that kind of necessitated the push for, like, you look at the the changing dynamic of both uh, WCW and WWF. They're starting off this decade kind of looking at Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair as their old guard and setting up the Ultimate Warrior and Sting, who would win the NWA title several months after after this event. And you're going into 1990 with Warrior and Sting as the two fresh new baby faces for each company to present as their their top baby faces. Can you think of too many other examples of babyface versus babyface WrestleMania main events? Oh, for WrestleMania main events, um, Austin Hogan Rock, and of course. Austin and Rock would be the big one, and I mean that one did terrific business. So I mean that would go against the grain of, but again, that was the company had a, had a really like that was the peak of of that Attitude Era peak uh, with your two biggest stars of the of their uh, generation. And I mean, I wouldn't Sean look at Brett this as well. Sean and Brett uh, had you know they were a babyface duo going in that was not a big wrestlemania either um but they've been they've been few and far between and i think it's sort of that um that that hesitation to do that just based on on past pairings but again i don't look at this as like a, a disappointment it's just if you're looking to the year prior when you're comparing pay-per-view numbers um it was you know i i, I don't think this was this probably had a, a larger uh, anticipation of what it would do on pay-per-view beyond 550. Um, mm -hmm. Some other things I looked up uh, way. WWF had one of their big television tapings two days after this in Syracuse, New York. If you were to have gone and sat down after you sat through 15, 14 matches at the Skydome, I guess 15 if you were there for the dark match, how many matches were you in store for at the WWF's post-WrestleMania television taping on Tuesday, April 2nd in Syracuse, New York? Oh, jeez. Oh, man. I'm going to guess 20. 20 matches? That's a lot of matches, dude, to sit through. What if I told you we're going to be taping 31 matches today <laughs> for our television, <laughs> dude? 
this this style as well. You know what I mean? Oh my god! Like these marathon tapings, and then like they taped like Tuesday, Wednesday, then like half the crew's off to New Zealand. It's just man, this time period is just how some of these people survived is a miracle. And sadly, like there are many people that did not survive. Ultimately, uh, when you're watching like 1990 WWF, it's a pretty macabre feeling when you're watching these shows. And like for me, watching that mixed tag on this show with Dusty, Sapphire, Savage, Sherry, uh, and even Miss Elizabeth. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Up and down this card. I'm sure it's, it's never really, you know, fun to to do that sort of. Um, Sorry, I don't. I don't mean to uh, get all dark here, but I mean no, uh, no. But we are it, looking it's at just, the. Uh... It's just a fact when when watching one of these older shows and and having to think about uh, the the grueling schedule that you know these people had to go through. I mean, you see the matches, and it's not like the style of wrestling is, uh, of course, anything like like it is today. But the travel and the hours on the road and. And just the, I guess maybe frequency of of shows that that occurred. Um, I'm, sh- you know, obviously it takes its toll. The last thing before we get into the actual review way is I did some some looking back because when I was uh, following the Toronto Blue Jays religiously, what I would read every day, my morning would start with the sports section of the Toronto Star, and what would I discover in 1992? But several times a week. There would be a wrestling column in the Toronto Star penned by Norman DaCosta. Did you have any interaction with this article, Wade? Did you ever follow the the Toronto Star's pro wrestling coverage? You know, uh, I don't think so. But, of course, I'm, I'm very familiar with Norm through Starphone. Starphone, yes. He was the, the first voice of uh, wrestling updates on Starphone, which was a free service here in Toronto. Uh, for, uh, 350-3000. Wow, very good. Yes, is that still work? Uh, I doubt it. I highly doubt it. What is it? So, what is it? Four one six three five zero three thousand was the number. Let's try it right now. Okay, let's see. Well, the person I did... you are calling isn't taking calls at the moment. Sorry. Please try again later. Oh, it's gone. Where? Where's uh, Norman DaCosta with the WrestleMania thirty seven preview? Anyway, so I dug up this article. There was like a lot of local coverage for this WrestleMania. It's one thing that you can certainly look at. And in 2001, WWF put out like this coffee table style book. And I mean, it is a WWF published book, but it's it's written from uh, Basil DeVito, who was one of the key executives in the company, kind of sharing his thoughts that went into the process of why we put a WrestleMania here, what the local coverage was like. It's some interesting notes. And in Toronto... You know, they he specified the fact that there was a lot of media that we got. Pro wrestling was taken a lot more seriously in Toronto. They also wrote about it from a much more, um, like, they were not so much breaking kayfabe as much. And that really helped them. And, again, that goes to the history that you have in a city like Toronto that we've talked about many times that when – whether you're looking at a Toronto or a St. Louis or a Houston or any hotbed that has those historical roots of pro wrestling – you do tend to get more more significant or at least more varied coverage of pro wrestling. Toronto was the case. And just in looking back at the archives here, like there was there was quite a lot in the lead up to WrestleMania that WWF received from the local media, such as the Toronto Star. 
That's really cool. That's something I really wish I was uh, more of a part of to be able to kind of see all that mainstream coverage of this. I what I you know in my um, I guess adolescence and and when I was young, getting into it felt incredibly niche. Any sort of and that's part of what what drew me to the law. And prior to that um, game with like uh, Donnie Abreu and, and Strombolopoulos and all those guys, it was just the mere mention of professional wrestling on any sort of mainstream sports coverage or TV news was so novel to me. So uh, it, it's cool to hear that. Norm DaCosta, hold so, it down. What I dug up, I'm not going to read this whole article, but maybe I'll, uh, I'll, I'll post it. In the uh, days leading up to WrestleMania, he presented his fearless forecasts for WrestleMania. So will you indulge me, Way, as I read you the predictions from Norman DaCosta going into WrestleMania 6? Please. Okay, so let's go through them here. They're, they're very quick, so we won't... Uh, mixed tag match, Dusty Rhodes and manager Sapphire versus Randy Savage and Sensational Queen Sherry, his prediction way... A double disqualification. Tag title match with the Colossal Connection against Demolition. The belts return to former champion Demolition. They get better. Roddy Piper, Bad News Brown. Crowd favorite Piper should pull off surprise in Battle of the Motor Mouths. Big Boss Man versus Akeem, or as he refers to him, Old Tub of Lard Akeem will fall to Big Boss Man who has already shown signs of turning babyface. Ted DiBiase with Virgil against Jake Roberts. Watch for Jake to put the jewels in the bag with his snake Damien and make a mad dash out of the Egg Dome with a victory. And Norm DaCosta would frequently refer to the Sky Dome as the Egg Dome, which maybe that is a colloquial term for the Sky Dome, but one that I never heard outside of these articles. The Egg Dome. I mean, if it is, it certainly didn't catch on. No, it did not. Brutus Beefcake versus Kurt, Mr. Imperfect Hennig. Beefcake Whoa. won't get a chance to use his scissors this time as Hennig, with help from his buddy Spudhead Lanny Poffo, will score a pinfall. <laughs> Hercules versus Earthquake. The Battle of the Titans should result in the 400-pound former sumo star Earthquake, a.k.a. John Tenta, squashing Hercules. Tito Santana versus Barbarian. Chico, always a favorite in Toronto, should win this one. Jimmy Snooker versus Rick Rude. With manager Bobby Heenan at his side, one must give Rude the nod here, thanks to some outside help. Let's skip over here. I want to get to uh, the end here. Rick, Rick Martel versus uh, Coco Beware. The obnoxious Martel should peck the heck out of the bird brain and his pet, Frankie. The Rockers versus the Orient Express. Mr. Fuji's Wiley team should put an end to the Rockers' stormy WWF run and the Hart Foundation versus the Bolsheviks. The cheers and the win will go to the foundation. Wow. Have it. Uh, you know, uh, very. He, you could tell he was having a lot of fun covering this stuff. Well, we also, the, the last one here is the big main event, okay? The evil force is the ultimate warrior who will have thousands of little warriors cheering him on as he meets his ultimate challenge. In the past, the matchups have always been good guy versus bad guy, but this time around, it's babyface versus babyface. What's old Vince McMahon setting us up for this time? Past WrestleManias have had some brilliant windups, but the experts are stumped about what's going to happen this time. The reason is simple. Hogan and the ultimate steroid are the WWF's main drawing cards. There is talk of Hogan doing a movie, and he will need some time off for it. 
Despite this, McMahon can't afford to let Hogan lose because the Hulkster looms larger than life to most of his fans. Will McMahon take a gamble and sacrifice the Warrior's popularity? The Warrior is scarcely comprehensible in his TV interviews, one strike already against him. After WrestleMania, Hogan is slated to travel to Japan, and there's no way he would pull in the fans if he were the ex-champion. Or would he? Only a natural disaster will prevent him from wearing that belt around his waist. Speaking of natural disasters, will Earthquake make an appearance and help the Warrior win? My money is on another long reign by the Hulkster. On this wow. day, Norman DaCosta did not have that shiny crystal ball in front of him. But <laughs> I love like the mix of like real events and stuff mixed in with like storyline aspects to this. this. This is quite the find on my part, I thought. Yeah, great find, John. Um, it, <laughs> the ultimate he, steroid. <laughs> I'm guessing, like, calling people out for using steroids wasn't as... Um, this is 1990. Taboo. I mean, this is before, like, 91 is when all of that really ramps up with, like, the the charges against George Zahorian and the linking to the WWF and such. It was playful to call somebody um, <laughs> the ultimate steroid at the time, I guess. But, um, wow. Um, well, again, like, it seemed like you seemed to have a lot of fun writing some of that yes all right let's get into it wrestlemania 6 april the 1st of 1990 and we open up with the opening of all openings as we are going through the constellations in the sky and there are the two biggest as vince mcmahon who's probably loaded on caffeine for this studio read upon the examination of the galaxies of spaces Images begin to appear, images of strange and powerful forces. But of all the forces in the universe, the two most powerful, Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior, prepare to explode. Champion versus champion, title for title. It's the ultimate challenge. It's WrestleMania. And I swear Vince McMahon probably collapsed after this read. He expended every ounce of energy into this, into this opening. A classic Vince read, uh, in in that classic Vince voice. I, it wouldn't feel like uh, pre, I guess um, I don't know, two thousands WrestleMania without his voice. I would have loved to have written these things, knowing this was the guy that was going to read them. What would? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I thought it. I, NXT I would love it if Norm Acosta would write these. Oh my God! It's the ultimate steroid. <laughs> Can I send Hogan to Japan without the title? <laughs> That'd be awesome. Or will the big tub of lard come out? <laughs> uh, so our announcers: the final time that these two would call WrestleMania together, Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse Ventura, who who were really the uh. The staple of WrestleManias from uh, from the very first show. I mean, these were your your voices of WrestleMania. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that this would be their last Mania together, and that Jesse would leave not long after this. But um, it, I definitely think, like it, to me, like voices teams denote the era. And you know, you were talking about earlier about maybe like sort of the peak kind of waning and, and declining. And I would certainly paint this as one of the big moves of the end of this particular era definitely 
I mean, you would luckily have, um, you know, you had Bobby Heenan to slide in, Roddy Piper as well. But but Heenan being just a, I mean, as much synonymous with Gorilla as Jesse Ventura was. But certainly, like, this is a an end of an era for the first six WrestleManias. But wait, if you look at the poster, you know what was, like, the most attractive thing on this poster? It was not the main event. It was not the title of the event. It was not the venue. 4 p.m. start time. Oh, wow. 4 p.m. 4 p.m. Eastern. Are you kidding me? And then it would have, like, even on pay-per-view? That's really interesting. 4 hmm. Eastern, 1 p.m. on the West Coast. Wow, interesting. Um, you can re- you can recall this from, like, this, this time period that a lot of the promos on the pay-per-views, like, they would reference on Sunday afternoon or this afternoon. It would be uh, the description rather than just being... Uh, just little things like that. But 4 p.m. Uh, was, yeah, the start time for this WrestleMania, which, man, for all the nostalgia we get these days, I mean, please, I welcome it. It makes a lot of sense, you know, especially if you're trying to attract a lot of children to get them home before uh, school night the next day. And um, just, I don't know, it's just overall being a bit more effective. But why do you think they changed it later on? I think they just probably found that Sunday night was a more palatable time for for people. I mean, it would be, um, you know, I'm sure I'm sure they just maybe football typically competition. I mean, remember when the UFC they tried this? This was in like 2011, and they moved the pay per views up an hour from a 10 start to 9 p.m. But what they were finding is that it was just way too early for the West Coast to start a pay per view at six o'clock. It was like bars were. It was just people were not in the mode to be starting that early. Now, I think that also had to do with 2011. They were kind of lower on on star power that year. Um, I think that had more of a thing to do with it. But they moved back to 10 o'clock, and they just felt like that was too early on the West Coast to do it at 6 as opposed to 7. So I think you it, it's it's an easy thing to look at when you're looking at numbers being affected you'll play around with, with the start time. And we, we see that today now where, I mean, they've kind of settled on this 6 p.m. kickoff show, pay-per-view starts at 7, uh, which was not always the case. You would usually had 8 for the longest period of time. But you've also seen like a lot of shorter shows over the past year with the pandemic and everything. One of the other things that always stood out to me about this poster, and this would always, I mean, at this point, I think it's a pretty iconic image of, you know, Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan, both of their championships posing. Um, I, it's it's an image I remember just seeing, you know, at DVDs or uh, video stores growing up and everything. But something that always stood out to me was, why are there seemingly like glacial mountains in the oh, background? This is, that, that's Mount Toronto behind <laughs> Yeah. yeah, just just that North the York. Rockies. This is every yeah. every American's view of uh, oh, we're going to Canada. Let's get our winter jackets on as the uh, the Polar Express will be taking us into town. Like, this is ridiculous. We're like we're, we're like eight hours away from New York here. You know, like this. It, it's it, it's like the moment you mentioned Canada, people think it's like we're like this is this looks like uh, Iceland or Greenland or or something. Um, but anyway, that's, that's Canada for you. One of the other things that you could maybe point to as well, like this is a a thing like UFC would also talk about is like when they would take a pay-per-view granted it's, it's to another, uh, well, in this case, we're talking the same, like a different country was one of the effects of that is number one, like if you're, if this is only Canada, but if you're doing a UFC pay-per-view in say Brazil, 
you're not going to have the same level of American media traveling and it would affect your coverage in the week leading up to that. So you, granted, you got a ton of coverage in, in and around Toronto leading up to this, but I'm sure like American focus on this was probably less than if you went to a major market in the US and would have all of that local media, which when WrestleMania bombed that year in Seattle, their response was the next three years going to New York, Chicago, and LA. Like they wanted to go to the biggest media markets because uh, they were they were going to get the most national coverage out of those significant parts of the country. It does make sense. Yeah. Um yeah, unfortunately for us. So to kick things off, the internationally acclaimed and renowned Robert Goulet <laughs> sings the Canadian national anthem, which required uh the 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 big jumbotron to have the lyrics of said anthem for Robert Goulet to rely upon as he sang overtop images of Canada and Gorilla Monsoon, uh, channeling his inner LL Cool J, ended by saying, Robert Goulet, doing it and doing it well. Wow. Uh, that's, that was not a Robert Goulet original? Yeah. LL Cool G. <laughs> so I'm reading here that Robert Goulet is of French-Canadian ancestry. But um, I wonder. I mean, he, he also like went to school in Canada. I would hope that he would know these words, these lyrics to our, the national anthem by heart. Well, well the, the the story in this WWF book was that they did have to put the lyrics up there because, I mean, it's one thing to live in Canada. It's another to, I guess, know the Canadian national anthem off by heart. Um, I don't know. It's, do you know it? I think I do, but you'd be putting me on the spot to uh, recite the entire anthem. I mean, for... God, how many years did you have to stand up at the beginning of school and sing that anthem? You had to do it every single morning for at least elementary school. We had to do it and high school. Did you ever do it in French? Yeah, we would alternate. There was like one day it would be in French and one day it'd be in English. So it would go back and forth. I could probably do it in French if I had to. Yeah, I feel like it's pretty ingrained in, in me as well, both of them. But uh, maybe not Robert Goulet. You don't want to no. screw up in front of 67,000 people. No, no. Um, for me, Robert Goulet will always be attached to Will Ferrell, which I don't know if does his legacy justice or not, but that will always be my reference point to Robert Goulet, a Canadian hero. Yes. And of, of all, like, of the celebrities, how they book Alex Trebek on the next year's WrestleMania, and he wasn't all over this year's show. I uh, don't know. Timing wise, you know, maybe maybe Trebek had to watch this one first before he said, you know, I got to get on that next year. Yes. Opening things up our first of 14 matches, dude. 14 matches. Oh, yeah. Whew. This is the Coco Beware against the model Rick Martel. And we had the wrestlers driven down in the miniature rings on trucks. Love these things. Great. Uh, we've got in the respective corners, Frankie, the bird, and Arrogance, the fragrance. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a professional wrestling match that went five minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, 
There was a high cross by Coco Beware, which was one of the high points of the first half of this show. Several great drop kicks. And then Martel returns, tosses Coco to the floor. Ware fights off of a Boston Crab making his comeback, but then he gets stopped short. Rick takes a phantom bump and misses a reverse cross out of the corner. Boston Crab by Rick Martel going to the, uh, the Young Lion roots and submits Coco Beware in five minutes and 30 seconds. I mean, I, I would even hesitate to call this a showcase match because I don't really know who it was meant to showcase. Um, not much back and forth. You watch these matches pretty much like the fourth, the thirteen matches that preceded the main event, and it, you're, I, I, you just marvel at what you can get away with on a pay per view back then, much less a WrestleMania, when a match like this wouldn't even be able to make Raw today. I love the fact that despite uh, fourteen matches scheduled here over three and a half hours. They still felt the need that, hey, we got to warm up the crowd with a dark match between Paul Roma and the Brooklyn Brawler. Well, listen. Maybe Mouth can give us a blow-by-blow of that of that contest. You know, I wondered, though, if the crowd even needed warming up at this point. They seemed to be hot for just everything. So, Oh, they I, were, um, yeah. I can't they discredit were... them. They, they just, they why, why jump off of ladders when you can get as much of a reaction with doing a crossbody? Hey, for all this... I mean, that crowd was goddamn electric for the main event. So whatever you want to say about this undercard, it did not diminish their excitement. And that, I mean, it's the novelty of like a big show here in Toronto. It's the first time the company's ever run the Skydome. And that main event was gigantic in this building, um, despite an undercard that I think would dilute a lot of crowds. Yeah, sure. Gene Okerlund is with the Colossal Connection, who he refers to as the colonoscopy connection good Brutal. one nice so bobby heenan says if you want to talk evacuation that's exactly what's going to happen to demolition we're going to shit these guys out and they're anything but regular guys <laughs> this this felt right at home uh in terms of vince mcmahon humor in 1990 and 2021 yeah, yeah. A, they're going to diarrhea all over Canada. I mean, I think a bit more subtle than maybe what we would go on to get with Vince. Was it subtle? <laughs> but regular guys. Well, it's not like somebody like, you know, spat black tar out of their mouths. Um, or did worse. <laughs> no, that's true. Then we got the greatest promo of all time. Sean Mooney is with Demolition with our locker room backdrop. So <laughs> Axe and Smash, they've really leaned into their namesakes. Okay, that is what they do. They are going to chop down that Polynesian oak, which kind of felt like they were taking the heritage of Haku, but extrapolating it onto the size of Andre. As they're going to chop down right. this Polynesian oak. Like, I mean, okay, Haku's a I, pretty big guy, too. But in comparison, like, he's not even bigger than Axe and Smash. I don't know if you're going to be yelling, Timber, as Smash said they would be when the Polynesian oak fell. And Smash wants to put them in the back of a semi-tractor truck, send them off a cliff, and smash them to smithereens. And Mooney observes... This sounds like a demolition derby. And we are out to seek and destroy. And the only thing that will be salvageable, salvageable from the scrap heap is the metal 
that will forge their new tag team championship. I don't know what the hell they were talking about, but I was ready for this match after Bill Eady and Barry Darso outlined their human destruction of the Polynesian Oak and his partner. I think if you were to be put into some sort of improv class and you're given, you know, the, I guess, identity of... (laughs) Axe... and smash yeah what what tell us some more about ourselves well one of you is an axe the other smashes that's what you do you are human you are human compactors i I really do feel like wrestling promos are essentially that you know it's improv class you're given a role and give me a few sentences uh speaking as if you were this role and as a result i mean i felt like this was pretty good stuff from demolition it was the, I mean, the, the stereotypical kind of 80s gruff-voiced screaming at the top of your lungs promo um, is a real lost art, I would say. Uh, but you had plenty of it, almost maybe too much of it on in, in this in, on this show. I'll tell you what a lost art is, is some of these themes. That demolition tune, I will never not enjoy it. That was just a great theme. That was nice to hear. Yeah, a lot of them. So the colonoscopy connection and demolition in the second match of the night for the WWF tag titles. This is when Andre is significantly slowing down, as you can see. Like, Haku pretty much does everything in the match. Uh, Colossal this connection. This would go on to be his last in-ring match, I believe. Um, Not in... uh. Like he would still hang around. He still did. He still did all the Japan stuff after this. Like he was still wrestling up until ninety two. Um, but this is his last WrestleMania, and he's severely, uh, pretty much limited at, at this point. So the Colossal Connection jumps Demolition, and they quickly turn the tables. They beat down on Haku, who hits a karate thrust to the throat of Axe. And they're chopping him down. Heenan slaps Axe from the floor and then is hit with an Andre headbutt. Smash runs into the crowd. And uh, that's setting up Haku here, who's just getting worn down. It's very dull in here with Axe. Andre chokes him in the corner. The tag rope is being used uh, to choke out Axe. Ventura thinks it's time to tag in the big man. This is seven minutes in where Haku is yet to tag in Andre. Axe gets a boot up in the corner, clothesline. This crowd is going absolutely nuts for demolition. When the tag is made and Smash comes in, they go insane. They double clothesline Andre. They double team Haku. And then Andre holds Smash and Haku misses, super kicking his partner. They drop Haku on the top rope, hit their finisher. And man, this arena explodes as demolition win back the tag titles for the third time in nine minutes, 15 seconds. Another very simple match. I thought Andre was hidden pretty well. Didn't do much here, but get himself trapped in the ropes. Yeah, this was, I mean, this was not much of a match, but my God, this crowd, they were very much into this. So that was the strength that they had with this crowd. Heenan then throws a fit and he starts berating Andre. He slaps him and Andre grabs Heenan. Everyone's going nuts. He slaps Heenan and Heenan just sells it huge. And then he turns around, catches Haku's kick. He attacks Haku, and he won't let Haku and Heenan leave in the cart. He says, no fucking way. I'm not walking to the back. Your, the humiliation you two will suffer is walking all the way 
backstage while I will leave on this mini ring. And he leaves to huge cheers. And this was uh, Andre's final WrestleMania match. And he leaves here as a babyface after being a heel consistently since the 87 turn with Hogan. Yeah, feel good closing angle here. Big moment for Andre. Maybe one of the more memorable portions of this show. I think so. Um, you know, it was at least noteworthy in the turn for Andre. And I mean, at this point, there was very little you could do with Andre. So this really did feel like the the last chapter for him in the company, even though they would try and fit him into other roles. Okerlund is with Earthquake and Jimmy Hart. And they explain that every scientist has their eyes glued to the seismograph and are expecting an earthquake but they don't know what it will read on the Richter scale. And Earthquake cuts a promo on Hercules being subject to the tremors. You're supposed to be mighty, but let me tell you, at the hands of an earthquake, even the strongest buildings can crumble into devastation. Once you feel the tremors, you'll begin to shake in fear. And as the earthquake intensifies and knocks the foundations from right under your feet, you'll crumble into a heap of rubble. And after the aftershocks swallow up all of the debris, the only thing left standing is me, the only natural disaster in the WWF, until Fred Ottman would get a rebrand. So what was more impressive with this guy, who was just like trying to keep his breath as he's cutting this promo, because he could not cut this promo standing still. He had to bounce back and forth on his feet while doing this promo on top of things. Well, I mean, yeah, he is an earthquake, I guess. Could um, you imagine the camera shakiness to get over this earthquake character today? What they would do? Jeez, yeah, it would be unbearable. It's it it's be. one thing I actually do like about that Bronson Reed entrance is, like, it's a cool entrance with the big stomp, and then he comes out. But then when he stomps up the steps, they do shake the camera as he's going up the steps. But it's not overdone. Right. Yeah, I I mean, I really enjoyed these promos just kind of um, because they're such a throwback. I mean, this man was full of sweat even before the match began. And I would say, like, they all really kind of embodied their characters really well. Uh, all of them sounded pretty smooth. So, and Earthquake, of course, is being heated up for a big program with Hogan. So you knew he was going to be like, that was pretty much what, you know, Earthquake's involvement on the show was to just continue destroying dudes. And they put over the fact he has sent 28 men to the hospital way. And Ventura says, well, that's typically what happens when there's an earthquake. People go to the hospital. Hercules ducks out of the corner and he lands this punch and actually gives Tenta a bloody nose and Earthquake just jumps up and down, causing Hercules to lose his balance. They have a test of strength. Hercules' shoulder tackles have no effect. And he wobbles Earthquake with a series of clotheslines. He can only get him to one knee, tries to lift Earthquake, and gets stopped. Elbow drop and the running seated splash. Earthquake wins in 4 minutes and 54 seconds. He is still undefeated, but then he's subject to the aftershock, which... Ventura notes, generally, within the next hour, you get hit with an aftershock, and Earthquake hits a second running splash. Yeah, I can't say uh, much of a match here either. Uh, maybe a Putski Award candidate. Uh, 
Hercules, as always. Hercules uh, was uh, certainly his own area code on this show. Yep. Uh, but, you know, character on the rise seemed, seemed like they were doing a good job with Earthquake on route to his feud with Hulk Hogan. Then the star-studded celebrities continued to roll out. We had Rona Barrett sitting down with Miss Elizabeth. And uh, Rona Barrett, she had worked on the likes of Good Morning America, The Today Show, and Entertainment Tonight. And she has to sit down with Elizabeth. She says she's interviewed a lot of glamorous stars, but they pale in comparison to your beauty. And Elizabeth says she served in a in an advisory capacity off camera this past year. And she just doesn't want to disappoint her fans. That's why she has not been present on screen. She's worried she can't help her performers enough when she's in their corner. And if she ever returns, she would be far more active. And Rona Barrett is so excited by this. Um. Yeah, I actually thought she was pretty good. I mean, I don't know what sort of like coaching they they had with him, her and Steve Allen prior to their uh, celebrity appearances, but they I, I thought both fit in very well. Like they, they really you can tell it. the celebrities that buy in and are having a good time being there, and others where this was a booking that my agent coordinated. And I mean, it's a far cry from today, where I think you have much uh, of a higher um, celebrity factor where it's celebrities that want to be involved versus this time period where it was very hit and miss where ones, it was like, this is a booking to do an appearance yeah. and they don't get this at all. And it's kind of, it's tongue in cheek and others that kind of just had a good time with it. And Steve Allen and Rona Barrett would fall into the category of celebrities that seem to, you know, take this for what it is. And uh, like Steve Allen was very entertaining on this show. Yeah. Then, Sean Mooney interviews Brutus Pietro Beefcake. Uh, in what way? His hair, dude. It's identical. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess that, that was the style. He is going to sever Mr. Perfect's record at a pretty good clip. Huh. Got it? Yeah. Yep. Mr. Imperfect with the genius. Spudhead versus Brutus Beefcake. So we had a big flurry of punches as Hennig just bounced all over the place. Like, this was borderline Shawn Michaels, Hulk Hogan level bumping by Mr. Perfect. Yes. It was just, uh, but entertaining at the same time. Like, we've been watching some pretty stale matches. I was all for Mm -hmm. watching Kurt Hennig just uh, act like a beach ball here for Brutus Beefcake. Uh, He calls for the sleeper. And we cut to Mary Tyler Moore, who, I mean, there would be an all-time classic interview with Mary Tyler Moore later in this show, which, if my mom was watching this show, this would have been the highlight for her. Of of the celebrity appearances on this show, I feel like she would be at the top. Oh, in the, I mean, this is, uh, you know, later into her career, but definitely. I, I would certainly place her um, in terms of just mainstream. Above Robert Goulet? I would put Mary Tyler Moore well ahead of Robert Goulet. Yeah. Genius is on the apron, and he tosses the scroll onto the mat, and Perfect nails Beefcake behind Joey Morella's back, then does the next snap, but Beefcake kicks out. 
And Monsoon says that the pendulum has swung 360 degrees and Ventura corrects him saying, no, it would be 180 degrees. And they had quite the contentious argument here. Mr. Perfect is back in control. Beefcake then slingshots him into the post. The crowd is buzzing. And with this, he pins Mr. Perfect in seven minutes and 49 seconds. After the match, he signals to go cut Mr. Perfect's hair. But Genius steals the hedge clippers. Beefcake catches him, brings him into the ring. Sleeper hold. Ventura's calling for a fine, a suspension. Gorilla's completely fine with this extracurricular activity as Brutus Beefcake uses the scissors to cut the hair of the genius. Yeah, on a show where, man, they were seemingly wanting to protect anybody and giving us, like, nonsense kind of DQ finishes, I, I wouldn't have predicted that they would have Perfect, who was apparently doing some sort of, like, winning streak gimmick at this time, lose to Beefcake in this fashion via slingshot to the top of the post. Um... <laughs> But, you know, there's something to be said, I, I suppose, about finishes coming out of nowhere because um, no, few of these endings to these matches came from straight up, like, uh, I don't know, your typical predictable fashion. Um, and this was one of those unpredictable fashions. Yeah. Top of the post. Okay, that was it. I mean, a big babyface win here for Bruce Beefcake, who was a, a very popular character at, at this uh, this time period. And then we recap the feud between Roddy Piper and Bad News Brown, beginning at the Royal Rumble when Piper eliminated him, and then Brown comes back eliminating Piper, and they brawl all over the place. And we go to a promo with Gene Okerlund interviewing Piper, who's got a side profile shot of himself facing the camera so that he can reveal the other side of him where he is all painted black. And this was not the first time he did this. He actually painted his face black for a lot of the promos leading up to this. And Piper has gone back. If you read his book from a number of years ago that his children put out, he's addressed this. And his defense of this at the time was trying to create some kind of angle and was trying to not be divisive, although this is one of those instances of something in WWE history that ages terribly and is pretty awful. Yep. Yeah. Um, no way to kind of really justify it, in my opinion. It's it's uh, doesn't look good. And on this show, it, to me, certainly stands out as um, one of the main things about it that makes the show really weird to watch. Um, this was like I, Piper reverting to like Piper is a baby face here, but he's reverting to like, if you go back to when he was feuding with Chavo senior in Los Angeles, like it was a ton of race baiting stuff that Piper was doing as the heel, other stuff that would uh, be pretty cringeworthy today. But in this, like he's the baby face, but as much as like, there's like the blackface element to this the promo, too, where he's, like, talking about, like, the eyes and the big nose and the bugged-out eyes of bad news. It's just, like, it's really awful. Like, it's it's really bad. This is, like, lowest common denominator shit to, I don't know really what the, to me, it would just make uh, for a very uncomfortable reaction. Like, if you're a 
If you're a, an audience member, I don't know how you're supposed to how respond to this. How about if you're Bad News this. Brown? Yeah, it's to me, it's like it's not putting heat on Bad News. If anything, it's I'm endearing saying, about, Bad News. Like he's the subject of like this racial bullying of Roddy Piper. Well, I, I was more so speaking like just simply as this man's colleague, you know, having to kind of play out the storyline. And from all accounts, it's the people have spoken. Like Pritchard has talked about this. It he says like Bad News never spoke up. Well, if I was working for a guy and he was like putting me in some an angle like this, like and my job was at stake, would I be that apt to speak out? It's not really, I think, that that simple. But it is, uh, you know, very uncomfortable um, in hindsight. At the time, you know, I wasn't there. And it's a different time, of course, as well. So maybe it was just not as big of a deal. But certainly one of those things that uh, makes the show not age very well. I mean, I've, I've always seen uh, clips of this promo. I guess never having sat down to watch the show, I was not aware that he wrestled the entire match like this. Well, and the story, and it's been repeated by Piper multiple times, was the idea that afterwards they had some some kind of solution to remove all of this. And Piper's story is that Andre and Arnold Skoland dumped out the solution or whatever, and that Piper actually had couldn't get this off. Now, he claims it was like three weeks. I have a hard time believing that. Uh, but his story had always been that he he... Could he had to actually travel with with this shit on? Which, again, it is a Piper story, but nonetheless, that's the story he has always uh, spoke about. So, yes, um, a terribly um, racist presentation here. Bad News Brown versus Roddy Piper, um, where we cut to a sign that reads "Piper for Prime Minister." Yes, of course. Yes. Yes. Wow, how appropriate. I mean, Justin Trudeau would, uh, I guess, you you could overcome uh, past footage of being in blackface and still become prime minister. Well, you have to become prime minister first. That is true. Yes. Uh, Ventura says, Piper could become prime minister. I could be president. Um, and Ventura openly says he's biased in this match. This is one time where he is backing the babyface because Piper is my tag team partner because they're shopping their pilot at this time, or yeah, they developed right. their pilot. Yes, for tag that uh, that short lived series tag team, which we've uh, reviewed. That, yes, which we have reviewed. That was a Chris from LA choice, correct? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, the match sucks. Um, they just brawl on the mat. Danny Davis is trying to separate them. There's a poke to the eye by Piper. Turnbuckle pad gets removed by Brown. And then Piper pulls out a white glove and starts punching Brown. And, dude, this is like a golf glove. Okay? I don't know what this is doing. It's not protecting the hand. It's just a white glove that the referee I just... I mean, this is the same referee that probably would be cool with Tenzon doing the Mongolian chops. He was totally fine with this. I believe in interviews he said he was trying to do some sort of Michael Jackson thing. And that's what the dancing was. That's what the glove was supposed to be. He had some be. convoluted story about somehow this was going to unite everybody together. Yes, yes. And it was, um, I mean, Black and White came out after this. So it wasn't a reference to that. It was, I don't know, it, dude, uh, it, he's an interesting man. And this creative process was um, interesting, to say the least. Brown on the floor misses and punches the post. 
Piper misses with a chair. The match is thrown out in 646 with a double countout. They brawl to the back and they proclaim that these two will continue to hate each other. Everything about this sucked. It was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the crowd loved Piper. I, 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 it kind of makes the crowd look, makes Toronto look really yeah, bad. Not, not exactly bad. our most endearing representation <laughs> to the world. This does not hold up oh, very well God. in 1990. <laughs> the match was shitty. Guys in blackface. Prime oh. Minister Piper. Fuck. Yeah, a shitty match, and, and I think really just kind of embarrassing, a, pe- a embarrassing piece of footage for wrestling in general. So to follow that, we go to the shower where Steve Allen is playing the piano and makes fun of the Russian anthem with the Bolsheviks, Nikolai Volkov and Boris Zukov, and he's making up his own lyrics. Uh, I thought Steve Allen was very funny here. Um, This is probably the only time there has been a Joseph Stalin reference on a WWF show that I'm aware of, and this culminates with... the final rendition of the Russian anthem where he says he'll be serious now and a toilet flushes. So uh, maybe not um, maybe not endearing to the Russian fan base. Um, but hey, Steve Allen, I thought he was pretty funny on the show. I thought this was a really cute skit. And I thought uh, Nikolai was just adorable, like playing off of Steve Allen, who's uh, like kind of razzing him. Um, he really seemed to like, treat this as seriously as he would something, you know, in his own personal career rather than just an obligation, which is always what you want from a celebrity cameo in wrestling. And he's a guy that years later, like when the WWF got very, uh, you know, right into the attitude era, like Steve Allen became a very outspoken voice about inappropriate content on television. And that certainly extended to pro wrestling. And at the time when he was a vocal critic, I mean, they would point back to this appearance that at one time he was very much ingrained or at least uh, willing to appear on WWF, but he would become much more outspoken uh, as the decade wore on as well. Uh, The Hart Foundation versus the Bolsheviks was next. And Zukov and Volkov go to sing the national anthem Gorilla Monsoon refuses to stand. The anthem gets easy heat, and Hart and Neidhart jump them from behind. Volkov is sent to the floor, and they hit the heart attack onto Zukov, pinning him in 18 seconds. And Ventura is livid at the jumping them from behind. And I think you can have two thoughts on this. This card drastically needed some kind of a great match to it, and you would probably point to the Hart Foundation to provide one of those. But... The bigger priority at this time was we're building to this big tag title match and the Hart Foundation. This was like presenting your, you know, 18 second knockout to build up your next contenders. Um, I think it really depends on what you're watching this show for that you could either be disappointed by this or seeing that the Hart Foundation are getting a mega push as the next big babyface tag team. Right, yeah. I, I certainly don't know if there's a huge priority put on, like, match quality or star ratings uh, from this no, it was It was not the priority it is today. Not not, no. a, not anything close. No, I mean, maybe it was more so just to kind of present your faces to, in front of the audience via the entrance and then giving them a, a satisfying result, and I suppose this was that. Um, certainly watching in hindsight, with 2021 eyes, we are looking a bit more for match quality, and I was certainly hoping that, you know, a Bret Hart appearance on this show would somehow save it, but... Uh, no, did not happen. I think in a bubble, uh, I didn't have a big issue with this. It's just when you look at this whole show, 
like to have, you know, their tag division was pretty solid, uh, even into 1990, even after like the brain busters have left, but you have all these great tag teams. I think this show, it, it, it sorely needed something on this undercard. And there's not too many candidates that you could point to that could deliver that, nor would I have expected the Bolsheviks to necessarily be the opponents that would um, provide that for the the Hart Foundation either. Right. Then there's the announcement of next year, WrestleMania seven at the LA Memorial Coliseum for March 24th, which would shatter the indoor attendance record. It would not nor would it take place at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum. Yeah, what happened? I mean, the prevailing thought was the fact that they, I mean, the public story was always that we had the, it was a security issue uh, because of the the heat that Sergeant Slaughter was getting. However, um, (laughs) if they had been selling really well, then you know what? They would have overflowed the L.A. sports arena. That was not the case. And I think you can look at ticket sales being not exactly what they were anticipating. And they made the right move, putting it into the sports arena because they were not going to fill that Memorial Coliseum. As much as people want to talk about, man, Slaughter was such a hated heel. I mean, that that angle, especially when when the Gulf War was occurring, um, it was it would it got a lot of negative publicity for the company it upset nbc they got a lot of negative publicity because of that angle and that's when you can look at the descent of the wwf at the time but yeah one of the aspects of business going down was you know this wrestlemania they were not going to draw uh upwards of you know close to a hundred thousand people for the show the next year has wrestling ever ran in that place memorial um, pro wrestling there have been uh, K1 ran this in – this was where Brock oh, Lesnar's first yeah. fight took place against Minsu Kim with <laughs> Goldberg's <remember>. legendary call. <laughs> yeah! Yes. <laughs> it, it was honestly the most bizarre booking of a venue um, and just kind of reeked of people who – I don't know why I don't know why they got that place. But, yeah, did not fill it. Gene Okerlund is with Tito Santana, who has been part of every WrestleMania th- thus far. And they asked Tito – if the barbarian can transition from a tag wrestler to a singles wrestler like he did. And Tito is going to have his eyes on both the barbarian and Bobby Heenan, but I will survive. He will survive. That's all he wants to do. Survive the match. Very simple message from Tito. So, uh, barbarian and Tito Santana with a young Jimmy Corderas as the third man in the ring. Barbarian hoists him up. He's taken down with punches. Uh, Santana landed a drop kick, finally taking him off his feet, went for the flying forearm, but Heenan puts the foot of Barbarian on the rope. Crowd is upset at this. Santana argues with Heenan. Santana's driven into the top rope and hit with a flying clothesline. The best part of this was the cool camera angle uh, to emphasize this flying clothesline. Santana rotates over and Barbarian pins him in 432. Not much of a match, but the finish at least looked good. Not much of a match is uh, what I, I want a say. deep dissection way of Barbarian and Tito Santana. <laughs> Four minutes and 32 seconds worth. Well, I'll tell you, um, he did not live up to his hope, and he did not survive the match. He did not. Then we go through the uh, the mixed tag setup here, where Savage was uh, threatening Sapphire at the Royal Rumble, attacking Dusty, and then Sa- Sapphire jumps onto Savage's back. Brother, love's involved here. Tremendous heat that this was getting. 
and then Sapphire attacking Sherry on the Ultimate Challenge special. Mooney interviews Dusty and Sapphire, who proclaims that Randy and Sherry, they aren't no king or queen, and they are missing the crown jewel. And we're all left to wonder, who is the crown jewel? Who is going to be showing up? Well, we'll tell you. So during the entrances, we had these fans who had a sign for Dusty and Sapphire written out, printed out on this computer paper that was all attached to each other, like the old school paper you would load into your printer. This mm-hmm. was a snapshot of 1990 technology. Oh, ripping the paper is like one of the most satisfying things you could do. Dusty cuts a promo and introduces the crown jewel, Miss Elizabeth, and Savage freaks out. She comes out. She's posing with Dusty and Sapphire. And Ventura, he says, I don't understand why it can't be men against women in this match with the women's movement in full effect. Okay. (laughs) This is Jesse Ventura's stump speech for running for president. Yes. Sapphire yanks Sherry by the hair. The crowd just is into all of this. Savage is sent crashing into Sherry. Sapphire then shoves Sherry into Savage on the apron and is landing punches. This was a perfect demonstration of Dusty and Savage pretty much having to do nothing, but the crowd just responding to everything extremely well. Sapphire would shield Dusty uh, from this follow-up double axe handle, and Savage then throws her to the floor, and Elizabeth is tending to Sapphire. Savage grabs the scepter, and behind Hebner's back, he uses it, and then Sherry comes off the top with a splash that was tremendously better than Snoop Dogg's. Dusty then fires back on Savage, rams their heads together. Elizabeth then tosses Sherry back in for the huge pop because Elizabeth is getting more physical. Sends Sherry to trip over Sapphire's back, and Sapphire rolls her up in 731. This crowd explodes for the finish. And afterwards, Dusty has the scepter. Dusty and and Sapphire get Elizabeth to dance. And what a sight this was, watching Elizabeth try to dance with Dusty and Sapphire. Crowd was really hard for this. Holy Christ, they were losing their minds for this. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I thought it was uh, very well done. You know, again, I wouldn't watch a match like this to expect any sort of technical gem, but I, you know, it, it's it's more of a spectacle. And I think the valets did a great job here. Crowd really got into it. Sherry was really great in this. Like, honestly, like Dusty and Savage. I mean, they just, you had a great program here and the crowd was really into all of these characters. The involvement of Elizabeth worked. And, you know, it really kind of tells this story over several WrestleManias. You have, you know, WrestleMania 4, it's like Savage and Elizabeth that this march through all these opponents. You win the title. You have that closing shot that's very memorable. The next year, you have Elizabeth who's torn between helping Savage, her husband, and Hogan, who used to be friends, and now they're split. And then Elizabeth disappears. You have this cameo. The next year is the reunion of the two. And, I mean, it's like kind of this long story involving Savage and Elizabeth through all of these WrestleManias. 
amazing that they can span that over so many years when i mean at the rate things are going these days it would be you'd be lucky if you could get six months and then rick flair trying to play homewrecker at wrestlemania 8 mm-hmm. savage defending elizabeth's honor so uh it would span many years then we had our like intermission period where we just did all these promos okerlands with the heenan family who he uh says the family members are falling like the berlin wall and Heenan cuts a promo on Andre the Giant and says, if you listen to me, you go to the top. And if you don't, you're never heard from again. And then Heenan had a rare blank spot here as Oakland had to cover for him. And Heenan is going to start a new family. Um, you know, I always love seeing these two together. And um, the screw up didn't really feel that awkward to me. You know, the unmatched chemistry between these two. Monsoon and Ventura are with Rona Barrett, and she says it's hard to get dirt on those in the WWF with such clean images. Wow. What a statement. Uh, She has uncovered. Jesus. She has uncovered some interesting film regarding Jesse Ventura. He assumes that this is from Predator or The Running Man. No, she has found some adult content alleging that Ventura has a sex tape and Jesse again saying, I think you're confusing me with someone else on tonight's card. And Ventura just cuts it off. Gorilla really wants to see this footage. And he would go on to see it. Well, he says, so what, what was this in reference to? Uh, I don't know what it was, in, what it was referring to. Was it was it just a joke or was there like a popular sex tape going on at the time? I don't know if there was some uh, some sex tape that was popular at this time. I just took it as like this idea that the gossip columnist had some dirt on Jesse for like just this play, this joke. Oh, okay. So it was her thing to uncover like adult films of celebrities. Well, I guess that's one thing she uncovered here. So, um, I mean, if she stayed on the WWF beat. she would have no she would have no shortage of gossip to come out. Sean Mooney interviews Savage and Sherry. Uh Savage is just out of his mind here, yelling to get on the phone and call somebody as he picks up a payphone. And he says that suffering builds character. The crown jewel doesn't exist. They will never be embarrassed again. And as Savage is cutting this promo, Sherry just screams for the entire duration. Yeah. I thought she was great. Sherry was awesome. Sherry was fantastic. I really enjoyed these two together. I thought they worked so well. Like, this was a very more cartoonish version of Savage, but I thought he was really great in this. You know, he's out. I wouldn't say he's out of the title picture, but it's like he is in a lesser focus role than of years past, but still like an upper echelon heel that had totally embraced this King character that had this awesome manager in Sherry. And I, I always enjoyed this act together for the year or so, the two years that they were together. This was a great freak out. Okerlund is with demolition. They state they're on a natural high uh, and some didn't think they could do it. And now they have the heart foundation to think about. And that would be the SummerSlam match. So they're from the get go. You're coming out of the show knowing that is the big tag match to come demolition and the heart foundation squaring off at a future date. And you're right. This is when we come back. Gorilla has now seen the footage and there is nothing to it. 
But then he gives this sarcastic look off camera. So what a weird segment that Gorilla has allegedly seen something compromising involving Jesse Ventura without Jesse Ventura's consent. And we just continue on. Well, I'm guessing nothing came of this. Uh, I guess not. Okerlund is with Hogan. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okerlund is with Hulk Hogan. He crossed the border, and as he crossed the border, he hovered over Skydome, which he calls the greatest arena of all time. The Hulkamaniacs greeted him at the airport, and it's his people that are here tonight. He points to his palm. This is where the power lies. He will get the warrior to his knees, and he will ask him, do you want to live forever? Then, if you choose to, you can breathe your last breath into my body so I can save you and save all of your little warriors. And it's not about whether you win or lose. It's just what kind of winner or what kind of loser you are, which would be quite the telling line. And he hopes that the ultimate warrior is a good loser. This kind of did telegraph like how this was going to end with that line that was conveniently inserted here by Hulk Hogan, who, if you want to look at Hulk Hogan and his angling his character at his finest, this night was one of them. Hmm. Explain. The end of this match, you can both look at it from the side of Hogan put this guy over, but by the end of this night, to me, the story was more so Hulk Hogan losing in the fashion that he did more so than the warrior being the heir apparent. I thought Hogan was very crafty in how he positioned the spotlight on himself at the end of this. And I remember because in 2009, I got a chance to do this pretty lengthy sit-down interview with Hulk Hogan. And I brought this up because uh, – and I explained to him like this idea that you could lose these big matches and Ho- and Warrior and Rock being the key ones – coincidentally in the same building where he made sure like he lost, but he made sure the spotlight was on himself. And he said in not so many words, like he explained, like I have the ability. He actually referred to me. He said, I could lose to you and make you look good, but I'll make myself look great as well in losing. And it's a skill that not too many people have. And I thought he was in fine form in this. Like you look back at the show. It's very much about, like, that spotlight is very much on Hulk Hogan at the end of this. Right. And you thought this was a, a this promo was a way to where he was, um, I guess. Um, I, don't I know, just think it's interesting that he puts that line in there. It's not whether you win or lose. It's what kind of winner you are or what kind of loser you are that I think is very much planting the seeds that it's like you're going off. And what are the announcers saying? Hulkamania will live forever. What a gracious loser Hulk Hogan is. And I think that like Hogan was listen, that's is this is a business about protecting yourself. And I don't even fault Hogan here that like this was the game at the time. Okay, the company is this is not like we're putting the title on Warrior for a couple months and then we'll get it back on Hogan. It would end up back on Hogan, but that was not the immediate plan. This was we are going with Warrior as our number one guy. And Hogan you know, 
I'll lose the belt, but I'm going to make sure that I am leaving with significant uh, ammunition for myself beyond this, that I am not just going to be yesterday's news at the end of this show. And he wasn't. Interesting. Then we go to the ultimate warrior. Um, I typed out this promo and I put it into Google Translate and I don't quite have a verbatim description of what this was. But here are his words, Way. You, first of all, he shoves Mooney, he just sends Mooney into the, the depths of despair in the Sky Dome. And he says, you are nothing but a normal to, to Mooney. You don't deserve to breathe the same air as Hogan and I do. So he looks to the camera and says, Hogan, I must ask you now, do you, Hulk Hogan, want your ideas and your beliefs to live forever? In this normal world, none of us can live forever. The places you have taken Hulkamania will live through me. That is why I breathe. This is why the warriors have come. There are ones to question where you are taking them. Do you no longer want to walk or step into the darkness? Hogan, the darkness I speak of is nothing to fear, excepting any challenges at the cost of losing everything. You have lived for the past five WrestleManias. Now I take what you believe even further. I come not to destroy the Hulkamaniacs and Hulkamania, but to bring the Warriors and Hulkamaniacs into one and accept all the challenges with the two together. I have come to do no one no harm. I am the Brady Bunch of the 90s, and we will bring our families together. So the idea here is I am not replacing Hulkamania. I am taking it to the next level. Yes, of course. Um, I, you know, I think the sentiment is nice. Um, the way he expressed it, uh, you know what, was perfect for the Ultimate Warrior. Yes. So this, this sets the stage for our main event to come. But before that, we had the Rockers against the Orient Express with Mr. Fuji, Sato, and Tanaka. Mm-hmm. With... Uh, the requisite uh, Japanese wrestlers theme song in WWF. Yes, of course. It we're born with it. it it's part of our uh, every Asian's uh, birth certificate. Yes, it comes with uh, this. It comes with uh, this particular the theme song, room. and you also get a bag of uh, of powder. Yeah. There are double pescados by the Rockers. Uh, Fuji pulls down the bottom rope. Janetti lands on the floor. He gets whacked by the cane and is run into the post by Sato. They come back with double drop kicks. Tanaka kicks Michaels as he runs the ropes. They get the heat on Michaels. Janetti gets the tag. They double team Tanaka. And then Janetti goes after Fuji and he gets the cane when Sato throws the powder into his eyes and Janetti stumbles over the guardrail into the crowd and is counted out. In 738, this, the crowd booed because these teams, uh, the following year at the Royal Rumble would have a match that would tear the house down. And to me, this was a great disappointment on this show. They had at least some time, 
but a shit finish. Um, th- this to me was a big disappointment on the show because we know that these four could have an excellent match, but we're really not given any opportunity to and doing like this terrible finish at the end. There was no reason this needed to be a count out. Well, yeah, just the glimpse that we had of the of the two of them interacting prior to this, it was by far the most active match of the evening. And of all places, you would not expect, you know, one of these kind of delayed countout finishes at a WrestleMania. So I don't know what the, I mean, maybe this is just standard at the time, but what are you going to save things for if not WrestleMania? Yeah, this was like, you know, the Orient Express were not at a point where you had to really be protecting them. I mean, this was, don't get me wrong, this was on the higher end of the matches we got on this show, um, which is not saying a whole lot. Steve Allen is with Rhythm Rhythm and Blues. Does this feel like a long show at this point? We still have many matches to go. Yes, it does. John. Okay. Yes, it I'm does. doing my best. No, no, um, no. I met, I met the the actual review, like or that, the actual WrestleMania. But yes. It's uh, how how long you saved this until like the last few days. What kind of time did you have to did you have to break this up into how many parts? Yeah, about mm, two sittings. Okay, I had four sittings, and it took me over a week to watch this show. Yeah, why you know why why spread it out when I could just kind of like fit it all within one space? Well, I'm sure you were deep into one sitting, and then they were teeing up. The live performance of Honka Honka Honky Love. Steve Allen is with Rhythm and Blues. Um, <laughs> Steve Allen's introduction is they've been called one of the hottest new bands today. Unfortunately, they are not here. And Valentine and Honky Talk Man just have to eat these insults. I found Steve Allen to be really entertaining here. He enters their locker room. Their new song is Honka Honka Honky Love. Alan says that he hasn't been this excited since he learned that Pee Wee Herman was straight. And Honky Tonk Man reminds him of Elvis Costello. And the Rhythm and Blues says, we're on our way to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Steve Allen says, great. I will call ahead and warn them. (laughs) He was very good. He was very good off the cuff here with these guys. You, I wonder, yeah, I wonder how much was off the cuff and how much like they were planning this, but he definitely has a very dry delivery that works really well for wrestling. Um, a lot of the jokes I felt were maybe context based, and so um, some of it was lost on me, but overall, I think you could appreciate a pretty unique delivery, especially like next to these larger than life wrestlers. Dino Bravo with Earthquake and Jimmy Hart versus Jim Duggan. This was great. We had the U.S. flag-waving babyface taking on the evil Canadian. I should say plural, because he had an earthquake with him. <laughs> this is Ooh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Monsoon says that earthquake should not be allowed to be out here because you cannot have a wrestler's license and the manager's license. I guess that's a conflict of interest. Hmm. Bravo gets clotheslined to the floor. The Toronto fans just love Duggan. Duggan shoves the ref aside, misses Bravo in the corner and gets attacked. Earthquake attacks him behind the referee's back. Then there's a knee up in the corner. Duggan hits multiple clotheslines, but when he goes for the three-point stance, Earthquake gets involved. So the two-by-four gets grabbed. He hits Bravo from behind. The ref misses this, and Duggan pins Bravo 
in 415, but Earthquake still attacks Duggan, elbow drops, and then delivers three Earthquake splashes. So the Canadians take out the Americans, and the Torontonians are livid. It's a strange dynamic, and I think even, um, I don't know, the love-hate relationship that Torontonians themselves have with uh, Americans is a very strange dynamic. But What you did have here, though, is the French-Canadian divide. I guess so, yeah. Uh, when pitting a, a French-Canadian against an American, I guess the Toronto crowd prefers the American. But really, it just came down to who was a babyface and who was the heel. Hacksaw was just very popular. You know, Hacksaw everywhere. was incredibly over. Like this, this was mm-hmm. a guy that you could very much headline your B shows with. Like he was like a super babyface. Yeah, um, and that extended. Like you didn't have the same kind of, um, you know, what you would have years later, where a Duggan very well could get booed in a Toronto. That was not happening in 1990. Then we get the long history of DiBiase and Jake Roberts. This starts in May of the previous year with DiBiase attacking him with the Million Dollar Dream. Then we just fast forward six months to an episode of Superstars, where DiBiase uh, tells Jake to come get the Million Dollar Belt, and Jake interferes, and he grabs the belt for a huge pop, and the crowd just wants to see Jake take control of the Million Dollar Championship. And Gene Okerlund interviews Jake. This promo has kind of been memorialized through, or remembered, uh, because of the a lot of clips in Beyond the Mat are lifted from WrestleMania 6, this being one of them. And he says it's the biggest match of DiBiase's career because everything he stands for is on the line. And he and Damien remember how many times DiBiase has made others grovel for money and use it for a, that could use it for essentials. And he made fun of these people. Now it's DiBiase's turn to beg. And he says, isn't it funny that the money, the money you grovel for is going to be your very own, a victim of your own greed, wallowing in the muck of avarice. Great promo from Jake. Like the best on the qual- show. Just quality. You know, like you watch a show like this and I feel like there are certain things that um, most things on the show I don't live up to the standard of today but many things do and i would say uh for one thing the crowd and the energy of this audience is something you rarely get today but it's promos like this one too that just uh i would say is superior to the standard of today uh and you know just shows you i i mean how how great jake roberts was and sometimes still is so that takes us into Ted DiBiase and Jake Roberts for the Million Dollar Championship. And when you're looking at the roster in 1990, these are two of your upper echelon workers. And by the standards of this show, got a lot of time. They got almost 12 minutes. And I would definitely say this was one of the better matches on the show. Agreed. DiBiase avoids the DDT and is retreating to the floor. And... Jake is using a hammerlock, dropping knees to a grounded opponent, uh, attacking the subscapularis, as Gorilla identifies it. Subscapularis. Then, with a front chancery applied, the wave starts in the Sky Dome. And this was the best, because (laughs) the wave is typically equated to, we are really bored. And I don't blame this crowd for what they've sat through at this point. An odd match to maybe voice your displeasure. 
But I also can't speak to the context of the time period if this was kind of like just a cool thing and didn't – because in my experiences, the wave would come out when people were fucking bored at these shows. But Jesse Ventura is so excited about this while Ted does not appear to be crazy about this response that they're getting. Which which was perfect because he was a heel. Yes, you know, and, it was and not it made Jake that had like a boo boo face on. It made more sense that the heel would be upset at the crowd having a good time at their expense. It made the wave look like uh, something that the crowd was doing to taunt um, DiBiase in support of Jake Roberts, rather than any sort of a uh, displeasure with the the product itself. Yeah, because the wave dies down. Um, DiBiase is yelling at the crowd. He hits Jake with a pile driver. And then gets reversed with the sunset roll-up. And at this point, this crowd is suddenly on fire for Jake. There's a huge chant for him. They show this uh, this shot from the floor seats way out. And man, this looked like the last place you would want to have floor seats is the Skydome. Stadium floor seats, I think, are tough. But it's, at, at that point, it definitely is more about being there for the atmosphere. I'm sure it would have been fun for that reason. You're watching the screen most of the time anyway. A lot of future wrestlers that attended this, uh, Lance Storm, Edge, um, you did have some... Renee Young. Renee Young was at this show. That's correct. Um, So the million-dollar dream is applied. Jake gets his foot on the rope. They're calling for the DDT. He hits the short-arm clothesline, which amazingly he's still using in 2021. Calls for the DDT. This audience is going wild. Virgil pulls Jake to the floor and he attacks him and scoop slams Virgil. DiBiase applies the million dollar dream on the floor. Both run into the post. Well, Jake sends both of them in and basically knocks himself out. And Virgil tosses Ted into the ring to win by countout in 11 minutes and 54 seconds. Well, best match of the show to me thus far, um, and I was sure we would get a clean finish for this one. Nope. But I, in this case, I do understand maybe this being the best way to protect Jake while putting the belt back on DiBiase. Um, definitely disappointed that you know we didn't get just a more conclusive finish, but I enjoyed the match. I did too. I thought these two, like you know, they they had very good chemistry with each other. It was a strange finish because it's very much like Jake kind of knocks himself out here. But I guess you're if you really want to stretch it's he's in the million dollar dream and he had to do something to break himself free. But in doing so, um, knocked himself unconscious, which I guess is one way out of things. I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. But afterwards, the the post-match, Virgil takes off with the title And Jake hits the DDT onto Ted, so the crowd still gets their big pop. They get the DDT, and then he gives away Ted's cash, including handing off 100 bucks to Mary Tyler Moore, which the announcers both agree she doesn't need, and puts a bill into Ted's mouth, gets the snake, and Virgil rescues Ted as Jake chases after them to the back. So, finish aside, the crowd still got their big, um, their big... Uh, heroic moment for Jake Roberts here, forcing Ted to swallow his money. And you got the snake, you got the DDT, you got the Jake Roberts experience, I guess. Yes. Which would be very different from a Jake Roberts experience at Heroes of Wrestling. Yeah. Sean Mooney is with Akeem. 
and Slick. They have split with the boss man because he would not accept a bribe from Ted DiBiase. And they imply that they have been paid off by DiBiase to take out boss man tonight. And he will be the one doing hard time. And Akeem chimes in stating there are two things that don't last in this world. Dogs chasing cars and law enforcement that doesn't take money. Hmm. What a what a interesting short list of things that don't last in this world. Okay, then we get this promo from the big boss man. This is boss man in his regular attire at this time, which I mean people have noted the fact that this is a uh your your babyface cop with the Confederate flag on, which was, you know, uh an image that you would see on wrestling baby faces in this era. He calls Ted DiBiase rich scum. I may be poor, but I'm proud. And calls Akeem a tribal reject from Africa that is too fat to fit in a pot. I'm proud to be an American. Ah! And he walks off. He, you know, it was another promo that definitely is questionable by today's standards. But at the time, you know, it's probably probably the norm, uh, you know, talking about being proud to walk to the ring without some skinny pimp black manager by his side. Um, a man who was just screaming at the top of his lungs and poor Gene here being spat on and sweat on by all these dudes just screaming. But um, it was a character that seemed successful. Are you familiar, tying things to another Toronto figure, are you familiar with the story that got former mayor Mel Lastman in trouble for similar comments in 2001? No. This was, uh, I I looked this up because uh, this immediately drew me back to the story that in June of 2001, shortly before he was going to Kenya to support Toronto's bid for the 2008 Summer Olympics, Mel Lastman joked to a reporter What the hell do I want to go to a place like Mombasa in Kenya? I'm sort of scared about going out there, but the wife is really nervous. I just see myself in a pot of boiling water with all these natives dancing around me. This is from the Toronto Star. The remarks sparked a firestorm of controversy which much with much speculation that they would offend African IOC members and endanger Toronto's bid. Lastman apologized profusely for those remarks. IOC Vice President Dick Pound later stated that the comments did not affect the outcome of the bid. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of this, it's, it, I feel it's hard for me to be able to say, like, what's right or wrong without being, I don't know, it's just a different time. And, like, it's, I, I hate to, like, whenever on these shows we have to, like, so often um, condemn I feel like there's pressure to to do that. Uh, action, actions of people of the past. Um, some of it is just context, but some of it's not really excusable, even in any sort of hindsight. But I, I'm I'm not the right person to to be able to say whether or not. Um, God, I, I think it goes to show you though, like an art, a larger part of wrestling at the time was. I mean, we're talking about stereotypes that were very much proliferated with a lot of these characters. And that would delve into a lot of stuff that uh, it's it's flat out racist uh, at, at times. And that's, I mean, you can look at it. It's like, I... Whether or not they realized. In some cases, they definitely should have, like in, in Roddy Piper. 
but others, I mean, I imagine this was just norm normal conversation, maybe for somebody like the big boss man or Vince or whoever. So the battle of the twin towers, the big boss man and Akeem, the African dream. DiBiase has been hiding ringside this whole time, way since the last match, and he attacks the boss man. Jesse Ventura brings up, Gorilla, you're outraged about this. But when Elizabeth did the same thing, where were you to protest it? Akeem gets into control as the match begins, but then Bossman tries to lift him out of the corner, totally loses him, fires back, sidewalk slam, and he pins Akeem in a minute 49, and then he beats up Slick. Man, these match times are like <laughs> A unreal. minute 49. Like, the, for almost so, so many of them, the entrances are far longer than the actual matches themselves. Um, so what, what, what sort of analysis can you really say here, you know? Not much of a struggle, not much of a match, and... I, I just I just can't imagine what a sociologist would think about this this wrestling program. Um, you had a bit of everything on this show between Piper and Akeem and anyway, lots to lots to dissect for sure. Sean Mooney is hunting for celebrities in the crowd, and he is interviewing fans about rhythm and blues. Uh, these were clearly uh, kids that had not been prepped for these interviews. They were as off the cuff as you could imagine, and. One kid says about them performing their new song, I don't care what it is, but they can't do anything. Looney says, all right. And he keeps going. And then he spots Mary Tyler Moore. And dude, Sean Mooney had stars in his eyes as he interviewed Mary Tyler Moore, who <laughs> I imagine they just asked, can you please just do a minute? And she begrudgingly said, yes. This woman clearly just wanted to take this all in, but she had to be just led through here by Sean Mooney. Mary Tyler Moore was a total pro. She's like, yes, this is the best of athletics and theater. And she's then asked, are you going to be at WrestleMania 7 in Los Angeles? Uh, yes, I'll be there. And asks about the honky-tonk man. Who does that remind you of? Does it remind you of Elvis? Yes, <laughs> this was the best. I thought this was so funny. Who does Greg Valentine remind you of? Uh, Elvis. <laughs> like I felt, so, I felt bad for her. This I did probably, too. It's like this oh was my probably God. like the first time she's ever seen this stuff. Um, I wonder how this even came about. Was I she think paid I think the story it? was she was in town filming something, and she actually did want tickets or something like that. I think that's how it went. Like it was, but I mean, clearly, I this was you know like if. You were just going to go check out something crazy because you had the night off or something and not. I, I would mean, hate to be like front row like this. You know, I would, would want to be a part of the crowd and just like get lost. But, um, well, she got her on screen appearance and um, something tells me she didn't make it to WrestleMania 7. No, she she did not. Maybe she was expect. Maybe she went to the Memorial Coliseum. It's like, where where is it? <laughs> didn't get the memo. Rhythm and blues are driven out by Diamond Dallas Page in a pink Cadillac with their gold album accompanied by the the Honkyettes. The Honkettes. The Honkettes. Whatever. Yes. The rule that you can oh. add ets to the end of any word. Yeah. Four WWE Hall of Famers in this Cadillac. Uh, you're right, because Jimmy Hart was there too. Amazing. So this was, this was DDP's WWF debut. And interestingly enough, that when you're going up and down the card here, who would wrestle at the WrestleMania in 2002? You have Hogan, but you also have DDP. 
You really should have come out for that match in a pink Cadillac. Dude, that would have been actually hilarious for just, but just he was to a tie heel, that wasn't together. He? Was he a he, heel at the time? No, he was the baby face that was doing the uh, the positive gimmick where Christian oh, was the crybaby. You're right. It wouldn't have fit. But I mean, man, if we had a proper DDP push and like the story of him finally making making it back here in the oh, same dude. building, like that that whole thing would have been such a nice story. He he's low on the li- on like he's deeper on the list of of misfires. But you can't convince me that you couldn't have gotten a whole lot more out of DDP at that time when he came into the company. I think that oh, they. Yeah. It was just that was a guy they clearly didn't get, and you did not live through his popularity in WCW. That he could have been in some significant roles and was not, but hey, he did make it to that mania that year. So, their new single is Honka Honka Honky Love. Greg Valentine appeared that he wanted to be anywhere but in this arena as they went on forever with this song. They asked, Do you want to hear it again? And then these vendors appear, which are the Bushwhackers, dressed up, clear the ring, destroy the guitars. Luke in his acid-washed jeans and Gorilla can just note that they are whacking and they're bushing. Thanks. (laughs) I love that we got this three hours deep into this card. Oh, man. I mean, honestly, we've been through far longer. Especially with like modern day pay-per-views, you know, like we're talking some of these shows being like five, six hours long, but this one for some reason felt far longer. And I think it was just a constant start and stop of action. The number of like appearances, number of entrances, the number of matches on the card itself. It definitely felt draining. But we're into the home stretch way. We're almost there. Finkel announces the crowd. 67,678 is the figure they give out. Not too much of an exaggeration by... Uh, by modern standards where it would not be uncommon that they'd tack on ten to 15,000 more. Rick Rude, accompanied by Bobby Heenan with his like dubbed-over version on the network against Superfly Jimmy Snuka. And for this match, we got Steve Allen on commentary, making fun of how ugly the babyface is. Snuka is doing Rick Rude's posing after a back body drop, which Rude got some significant elevation off of. Catches Snuka with a snap suplex, does his own pose, and then Snuka, who is not doing the superfly splash off the top, instead comes off the second turnbuckle, missing, and is hit with the Rude Awakening as Rude wins in 350 and would be Warriors' big opponent uh, post-WrestleMania and would headline SummerSlam. Another match on the show. Um, <laughs> Dude, my game for the last like 40 minutes has been what will weigh's one sentence synopsis dude, of these nothing matches I, be <laughs> i'm sorry i got nothing to say i mean about the match itself at least but i have to uh, you know what the one point of a uh, drama i would say for me with this match was i thought herc was a clear front runner for the post uh scott putzke award on the show i'm gonna give it to jimmy snooker he just snuck it out by the end. Dude, I thought you could have gone either way in this match. And I would—I don't know if either tops our main event physique of Warrior. Yeah, I don't Warrior's more tanned. You know, more Warrior's big, taller. But man, Snuka had like the bulge. Like the, the veins and, you know, take your pick, I guess. Well, that was, uh, that was the, um, that was the time period. Let's just say that. 
We go through the history of Hogan and Warrior. Yes, there actually is a main event at the end of all of this. Uh, We go through Saturday night's main event where Warrior accidentally knocks down Hogan as he's fighting off Mr. Perfect and the Genius. Then on the main event, Earthquake is about to jump on Warrior when Hogan runs out to stop him. And this upsets Warrior. And on Wrestling Challenge, Warrior saves Hogan from Earthquake. And we get this bizarre angle where he stops short of clotheslining Hogan, who, like, catches him. And then Warrior just runs away to the back. The sense I had was that Ultimate Warrior was, like, like this wild animal that, like, I guess he was, like, supposed to be, like, a gorilla or something. And he would just randomly, like, run around on a whim, uh, swing his arms on a whim. And if you happen to get in the way, there, there's your feud. There's your program. So that is the setup for the ultimate challenge, Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, with both championships at stake. Uh, neither comes out with the assistance of some little truck. No, these are men. They will walk all the way down the aisle. Uh, Warrior, in his case, sprinting down the aisle. And my God, did Hulk Hogan get an insane reaction. There was a palpable buzz for this match. This was what everyone had come for. And this crowd was amped when the bell rang. You know, the the closest thing I would have been able to experience to a reaction like this would have been Rock versus Hogan in the same building. Which was unreal I, live. Like that was unreal. I still don't think I've been at a match that has had that level of reaction to it. Like it was, you, you talk about uh, like the ground shaking. I'm not going to go to that extent, but in my area, dude, like the seats were shaking. Like it was, yeah. you couldn't hear the person next to you for that match. It was a unbelievable environment to be in. I've never been a part of a setting like that with the, so many people. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like you, like in these big stadiums, like the noise does travel up. But when you have something like, like it was just unreal when you had uh, that many thousands um, just electrified by that match. It was, it was something else. And I imagine it was very similar in this case. In 1990, and especially being positioned in the main event after, you know, three and a half hours of of the, of the, one of the most boring wrestling I think you could imagine. Yeah, I, I can imagine this this crowd being really, really in, insane at the start of this match. I will say this about Hulk Hogan. Uh, he is never going to be confused with uh, Ric Flair of this era. But when it comes to working a big stadium event where you've got that crowd already, I mean, he is very, very smart and knows how to play to, there's a very big difference between wrestling in an arena and wrestling in a stadium. And Hogan certainly knows that difference. And I thought they, they they laid out a very uncomplicated match that for the time period was, I think greatly exceeded any expectations. I think if you're watching in hindsight, this would not stand out to that degree, but they laid out a pretty basic match that, if you were to tell me, Hogan and Warrior, you're going to get 23 minutes out of these two, and you're going to have the crowd from start to finish, I take that as a victory. Well, my first experience of this match would, would have been on like one of these like compilation tapes or like a compilation TV special of like the best WrestleMania matches. And in the context of WrestleMania matches, like I'm watching this probably after like TLC two, and I'm like, oh, what? This is a what? What's the big? What the fuck is the big deal about this? This is a really boring match. But in the context of the rest of this show, 
this was like dude this was water in the desert okay that's what this was absolutely so you really have to kind of be there you have to like know think about the standard of wrestling at the time and the standard of wrestling that was maybe not the standard of wrestling at the time because like they're in other promotions i'm sure they're doing far better than this but the context of, of wrestling uh in this company on this show prior to this uh just to be even get get something a bit more substantial to get a kick out of a finisher felt like it was uh, such a rarity you want to know how the first time i got this video was you know, my local video store, my dad would usually take me and my brother on a Friday and we could rent a movie. And they had like their wrestling section, which was near the new releases. And it would be like seven WWF tapes and it would be the most recent pay-per-views. So you had a choice of like seven or so titles. And that's what we were limited to, a space of like 18 months worth of WWF pay-per-view events, but it was always like the same seven. And then the new one would get released and be put there and you'd have to wait weeks and weeks till it was available. So one day we're there and they've got the trolley with the person working there, returning all the tapes to different sections. And on that trolley, I spot like in a plastic case, it's like an old WWF show. I was like, that's really weird because I've never seen that particular title here. It's one, not one of these latest pay-per-views. And as I'm watching this, the guy returns the tape to a different section. And I go to investigate this. And dude, nine-year-old John Pollock, dude, my eyes might have fallen onto the floor. Because in this separate wrestling section was where they housed all of their wrestling releases. And I'm, dude, I'm going from looking at like the same seven titles every week to all of a sudden I'm looking at like 40 different tapes, none of which I've seen. And I'm fairly certain that the first one I grabbed was WrestleMania six to, to watch this. And a new career was born. Uh, maybe. But my God, when I discovered that there was another wrestling section in this Rogers video store, I couldn't believe it. That Dude, they had NWA stuff here. I was like, that's how I got to see Flair Steamboat the first time. I love that origin story. John never heard that before. Incredible. There you go. So we have the big stare down. Earl Hebner goes over the rules. The crowd's just going insane. And we're just doing basic shit. Shoving back and forth. Test of strength staple of any street fight warriors winning the crowd loses it as hogan goes down to his knees but then hogan gets back up and he puts warrior down on his knees crisscross spot like dude this is a really simple match hogan gets sent to the floor with clotheslines and he starts selling his knee and he's limping unlike any person with a knee injury you've probably ever seen like this limping was designed for the dude for dan lebranski in the 500 level to be able to see hogan fires back in the ring he overcomes a torn acl midway through the ring and he repairs it in his mind wears down warrior we go to a chin lock warrior breaks free there's a double clothesline both men are just exhausted warrior then shakes the ropes his power meter goes up no sells Hogan, who has never had this calamity before. And then he goes deep. He's going to his Japanese roots. Vertical suplex. And then a bear hug 
is applied onto Hulk Hogan for a very long time. The arm goes down once. The arm goes down twice. The arm goes down a third time. We're done. That's it. It's over. Hulk. This would have been the perfect way. Hogan finally, the the arm oh, just the hug. blood flow cannot stay. Keep his arm up. <laughs> After all hug. these times of teasing, at one time he just no. I can't. I can't do it, guys. I can't. <laughs> Warrior then misses Hogan coming off the ropes and takes out Earl Hebner. There's a flying shoulder block that misses, and Warrior is driven into the mat. This was, he comes off and it's like his momentum knocks him out cold from hitting the canvas with his chest. He's out. He's concussed. Yeah, I don't know what, I I guess he was supposed to, it was like a missed shoulder block, basically. And uh, one that, yeah, knocked him out. This was the equivalent of like you, you going through like a water slide and you're knocked out. So he's out. Hogan goes to cover him, but there's no ref. Warrior comes back to life with a back suplex, gets his own cover. So now, way we're into a two out of three falls match. And as Hebner counted two off this Warrior cover, the crowd loses it as Hogan kicks out. Hogan goes for a schoolboy kick out. Then Hogan is sent into the post. And with that, Warrior hits a gorilla press, splashes the back. Hogan kicks out and he's hulking up. And you're thinking it's going to be every other Hogan finish. He lands the big boot. But then when he goes for the leg drop, Warrior moves out of the way. He splashes Hogan and pins him in 22 minutes and 49 seconds with Hulk Hogan, ever the worker, kicking out at two and three quarters just to leave the shred of doubt. But Warrior is your winner and double champion until he would have to vacate this title weeks later. You know, the... I think, in, again, in context, I thought this was a fantastic match. The anticipation alone and the atmosphere made this great. But I, it's, for me, it was their ability to pace and control those reactions that was really impressive. Maximizing every little movement in this match. Um, something that I thought, you know, contained genuine skill here. And a lot of credit to Pat Patterson as the agent for this one as well. Apparently choreographing um, every single one of these moves. And man, um, the late kickout I think is definitely one that's controversial. I also don't... Bu- also builds to a rematch if they had decided to go that way. Yeah. So I personally, I I guess like this since this was positioned as such a razor close victory between two equals throughout the entire match, I didn't have such a problem with it. But if this was set to be some sort of big passing of the torch, then yeah, I could see it definitely taking the effect away. Yeah, it's um I don't think it's even a spot that's all that remembered the fact that you do have like the late kick out spot that kind of uh, it it leaves a door open. I I don't think it's like this uh terrible uh thing that changes this. Again, this is a match that I think at the time, even if you were a fan that followed closely, this had to exceed your expectations. These were two very limited guys that got the very best out of themselves with a very carefully orchestrated match that one over the crowd, and ultimately that is what you are trying to accomplish. So I can't really, you know, if you were to watch this today, this uh, it's probably not holding up. But again, this is not designed for 30 years in the future. This was designed for 1990, and this crowd was into this from start to finish, and they went nuts for this match at the end. 
And the idea was that this was very much a passing of the the torch kind of uh, presentation, which would be funny considering that would be the story they would draw upon 12 years later. Passing of the torch. Yeah. I hate that term, but yes, that was the idea here. And then afterwards, like this was really, to me, the mastery of Hulk Hogan was this post-match that is all of three minutes, but you get the shot of Warrior with his intercontinental title and Hogan grabs his title on the floor, walks into the ring and he presents it holding up the Warrior's arm. And you have Gorilla proclaiming that the Hulkster has just taken one giant step to immortality. Ventura, ever the Hogan critic, even he laments, this was not a Tyson Don King affair. The man is going out a true champion. How dare you not show up for Saturday night's main event and or the main event. They agree that Hulkamania will live forever. And then Warrior remains in the ring with both belts. And we cut to the sad Hulk Hogan in his mini ring being taken to the back as this crazy pyro display ends the show. Incredible atmosphere to close the show. A big moment that, you know, will always be remembered, I think, in. Uh, WWE history at the very least and uh, uh you know save this show honestly like I, there is it's no the only thing you remember this show for beyond Hogan Warrior you'd be really scratching your head to remember much on this show I would think you know when 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 I saw the end of my video it still had 30 minutes left in it and we just had this one match I really was like man we probably have a lot of post match but no like they went like a pretty considerable length for these two and also considering i guess the style of the time so uh all in all i i don't know if they could have been more happy with the way this main event turned out yeah and unfortunately they redid this in wcw with one of the worst matches of the decade so they have that to even things out but i think honestly that you have to look back at warrior and while he's never going to be remembered as a great wrestler the fact is this guy ended up having the two greatest matches of his career on the biggest stages with this year's WrestleMania, and then the next year, an even a way better match, in my opinion, with Randy Savage. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that one, but um, wow. But those are the cool. two big matches of his career, and it's like if you're going to have those kind of matches, they're going to be far more remembered when they're done at a WrestleMania versus um, you know, somewhere else. For sure. That is WrestleMania 6. I don't even know what your rating is going to be. I am still only going 4 out of 10 on this show. And I'm giving most of that to the in, the atmosphere for the main event. I think the crowd deserves an enormous, uh, an enormous impact on that rating for me. Yeah, um, I guess 3.7. 3.7. Okay, well, yeah, this is not one of the stellar WrestleManias. No, but the main event, sure. It's a memorable it's one. Watching. Yeah. Yeah. And a significant outcome. Like Hogan's first like clean job since the national expansion. I mean, that is noteworthy. So there you go. WrestleMania six. At this point, we are going to welcome in our special guest, Dan the Mouth Lovransky. Well, joining us now, a special guest here as we go back to April of 1990 to chat about WrestleMania six from... Sunday night's main event, he is Dan the Mouth Lebransky, a man that was in attendance 
for this particular WrestleMania. And uh, he just had to go turn his music off because he was listening to a honka honka honky love from <laughs> Rhythm and Blues, which you got to see the live performance of on this show. How are you, Mouth? I'm good. I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. Uh, soldiering through this mammoth WrestleMania, which featured <laughs> 14 matches, uh, one of which people remember uh, 31 years later. But uh, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on was the fact, you know, this was this was before me and Way were following uh, things. So we were not before at Before you were show. born. Isn't this before you guys no, were? No, no, no. We were, we were six. We were six at the time. <laughs> okay. Before uh, Braden was born, probably. This was uh, – Bra- Braden would be probably an infant one. at this point. Yeah, probably was one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, Mouth, g- give me a sense of, like, the time period. Uh, was this something that, like, you and your friends, there was a huge interest in, the fact that there was a WrestleMania coming to Toronto? And what was uh, the driving factor to go live? Was it a easy decision to make, or were you kind of on the fence about whether this show was going to be of interest? Oh no, we, we 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 totally wanted to go the minute it was announced. I mean, we I mean, me and my buddies are uh, we were just the right age when the expansion took place and we really got caught up in all that stuff and we were always going to the WrestleMania at the closed circuit venues. I, I watched it in different arenas and different cities leading up to all of this. So when it was announced that it would actually be in Toronto and that we could actually go, uh we were absolutely all over it. Plus the other thing you have to remember is the Sky Dome itself had just opened in July of 1989. So it was a new attraction. It hadn't had a lot of big events yet. This is one of the first big events there. And that was a big attraction uh, for a lot of people as well as as the show itself because to, everyone wanted to see how big and mammoth this facility was and, what, and to see a really big uh, event in it. Um, and uh, certainly, you know, Hogan, you know, as you guys know, Toronto's always been a heavy Hulk Hogan city. So they were totally pumped that he would be there and in the main event, right? How did the Skydome compare to other places that you would watch wrestling and even concerts? Like, how would, how would you rate the Skydome as a venue in that sense? Oh, well, it was never really good for concerts, that's no. for sure. I, I don't think I ever saw a concert at the Skydome, whether it was full capacity. A lot of times they would rope it off and use half of it, and even that would cause a lot of bad sound issues. Uh, uh, wrestling? No, I, I mean, it, 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 I mean, the place was huge, unless you were at ringside. Uh, certainly going to Maple Leaf Gardens or something like that was a, a lot more fun because even though it was a big place, it really didn't matter where you were sitting. There were really no bad seats in it. This place was gigantic, and, and my friends and I, being the cheapskates that we are, we didn't splurge on big tickets, so we were quite, we were quite a ways up uh, in the rafters, but, uh, at least you could, you could see the overall spectacle, uh, of the thing, but I mean, yeah, it's not when, when, when venues are that big, it's not usually the best place for whatever's there. Do you remember mouth, maybe a sense of what the buzz might've been like, uh, outside? Totally. It was huge. It was huge. Like what really kind of happened. If you think of the original expansion from say 84 to 90, when this takes place, there had kind of been a peak in 87 with WrestleMania 3, and then it kind of laid off a bit, and then it, it peaked again with WrestleMania 6. So there was a huge buzz. It was all over the city. Uh, Hogan was on the side of buses. 
Uh, like it was everything, posters everywhere, was covered heavily in the news. The Toronto Sun had always been super wrestling friendly anyways. And they had pages and pages and pages building up to it. Uh, you know, people, you, a lot of them were in town beforehand to do press and stuff like that. It was, it was, a, it was a big deal. This is kind of the last big show of the original expansion because after this, it kind of falls off for a few years, really, till we, we almost get to the attitude era and that. So it was, it was a pretty big buzz. It was, it was a lot. Plus uh, Hogan's huge ultimate warrior too, despite the fact that, you know, we all understand he wasn't the greatest in-ring performer, but in terms of a character, he had caught on, especially with young children. You have to kind of remember that the young children always were wrapped up in Hogan forever. And this was really the first guy to come along that seemed to really get young kids again, like Hogan did. And so that was a big part of it too. So you just had, it was like everything you could want. You had the adults, kind of the sly, ironic adults that were into it. You had teenagers into it and you had young kids into it. So it was huge. The buzz, the buzz was huge for it. Going into it. I mean, were you looking at this, like this would be the coronation for the ultimate warrior, or was there still the thought that, Hogan, I mean, you, you had not seen Hogan lose clean during this whole national expansion. And the idea that uh, would would this be like in either either outcome, it would be significant. But were you looking at this as like Warrior was being positioned as the guy to follow up on on Hogan? Honestly, John, I'm going to be honest with you, because this is 1990. I'm still not really following it behind the scenes type of thing. Honestly, for me and my friends, we were really tired of Hogan on top. We had just seen it, you know, like you said, for all that time. And we really wanted to see a change. And we were not big fans of the Ultimate Warrior either. But we there was also something we felt where like, you know what, this is going to be it finally. And I I think that was also partially why we went is because we felt we might be at one of the few times Hogan was ever pinned in his entire career. Um, So really, a lot of the attraction for me was to be there to see Hogan finally get pinned and and have to go down a couple slots because he had been so dominating during that whole expansion period. Was that sentiment um, carried by the rest of the audience mouth? What was the split between Hogan and Warrior uh, supporters? Yeah, you know what? It was really weird way because you had two baby faces, right? And uh, so it was really strange. Like when we were going down to the event on the transit, there were lots of uh, young kids there. And I was going up to some of them going, oh, so what do you think? Is Hulk Hogan going to win? And a lot of the little kids seemed to be all over the ultimate world. Like, no, 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 the warrior, the warrior. <laughs> I think he'd really made it, uh, an impact with young kids. So this was this I find I was finding this really interesting because I thought they would all be into Hogan and stuff. I'm like, wow, these kids want to see Hogan get beat just as much as we do. So we go down there and then you you see the the actual match, which I mean is not a great match. I it always astounded me that their ultimate warrior was the one guy that knew to roll out of the way when Hogan did the leg drop. I'm like, wow, one guy finally figured it out. Um, but at the end. When Hogan was beat, of course, kicking out as close as he can to yep. a three count. <laughs> when he was uh, beat at the end, though, despite all those kids going crazy about Warrior, where we were in the stands, kids were crying. Kids were bawling when Hulk Hogan lost. There were a lot of 
really like it was it was mind-blowing because i never thought of it on that level of emotional uh, intensity and these kids there were kids there that they were majorly upset by this so it was it was it was a pretty big deal it was a pretty big deal for the younger kids they were they were really affected by it um and I don't think I don't I don't know because I mean it, the Ultimate Warriors run really wasn't that successful after this. So I mean I don't think ultimately they did like him. I think they still really did like Hogan. I, I think we talked about it earlier, but you compare like both the WWF and WCW going into the decade, it felt like both had the idea that we want to move on from Hogan and Flair, and the big figures would be Warrior and Sting. And it, it's very tough to be the follow-up to a successful act that they had in Hogan and Flair. And as we would see, they would certainly not, this would not be the end of Hogan or Flair by any stretch in the 90s. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's a, that's a, that's a good point. And it's funny too, because Sting and Warrior coming from the exact same roots, right? Which is pretty amazing that at that point in history, all of a sudden they're the big guys on the two major companies. Uh, But yeah, that was, I mean, with WCW, I think it was more that they honestly believed Flair was over the hill, which was just ridiculous. I mean, no fan believed that, that's for sure. Uh, So they were just kind of misguided. Uh, The Hogan thing, I mean, yeah, Hogan, I think they really, they did need to freshen it up at that point. I really think they did. It's just, I don't, it's, it is hard to do something that's going to be as monumental as the guy that's just been your top guy for like half a decade. That's. That's, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty major. And it, a lot of those don't get replaced overnight. It has to be built over time. Yeah. He had to, he needed a top heel to go after publicly like Saddam Hussein. <laughs> yeah. See, exactly. By WrestleMania seven, the very next year, it's a joke. And Vince had to, what Vince had to cancel the bigger venue because ticket sales were not even going because they did that hideous angle. So yeah, there you go. What do you recall about like in the ensuing uh, months in in Toronto? Like they're pretty much running Maple Leaf Gardens is a pretty regular stop for them. They're they're pretty much done doing the Brantford tapings at this point, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're exactly they weren't doing those anymore by then. No. And would you come down to Toronto often, or would that be be rare to to come down when the company would be in town? Uh, well, by 1990, I'm here in the city. Okay, gotcha. I'm living here by that point, so it's a lot easier to go. But I mean, we would come down all all through the '80s period, though. You know, depending on who it was. I mean, most of the time it would be Hogan in the main event when we would go. Uh, yeah, the, when when they again in that period from '84 to '90, you go to Maple Leaf Gardens, and it would it would be close to sold out, packed almost every time you went. Um, I saw Hogan versus Kamala. I saw Hogan versus Butch Reed. Uh, I, I even actually saw one of the Hogan versus Flair matches in um, 91 when Flair first came in. Okay. They, they only did them on house shows and they, yeah. they did a show in Hamilton actually. And a friend and I went and that, that was certainly just like, I have to go see that. I was, it wasn't even pushed as a big thing. It was, uh, it was really bizarre, but uh, you know, after, you know, kind of after WrestleMania six, I think a lot of the house show stuff starts to drop off. I mean, think about this guys in that expansion period, they are doing once a month. Yeah. Once a month in yeah. Toronto, wow. like once a month they were doing shows and they were doing well. Like it, it just shows you how hot it is. Like, what do they do now? When do they hit Toronto? Like once, do they hit Toronto once a year? I guess once or twice a year. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, like, I mean, back when house shows were even happening, yeah, you'd, you'd get, like, maybe, yeah, twice a year, tops. Like, that yeah. would kind of be, you know, they do... You know, at the Rico, that's pretty much what they're what they're yeah. hitting now these days. Oh no, like- back back in the day, in that that expansion period, it was always fun to go to Maple Leaf Gardens. A lot of times, we wouldn't even need a big excuse. We would go see like Hogan versus Kamala. We knew it wasn't going to be great in the ring, but we wanted to we wanted to go see it anyways. So, and it was always fun at Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, they always had good crowds, excited crowds, people really into it, and the unique setup with the ramp and that. It was always fun to go there. Outside of the main event, were there any other standout memories from this? Yeah, show? there's there were a couple matches that got like this, the total demolition versus Andre and Haku that got a big push. Like that was a, that had some steam going into it, um, and there there were a couple others. I mean, Dusty and Savage had been feuding, so I mean that had kind of built up. But other ones like Heart Foundation and the Bolsheviks that was totally just thrown together the last minute. Oh, and the, of course the Bad News Brown Roddy Piper that got a lot of uh, uh, interest going. And I, I'd say it was the the Piper Bad News Brown and uh, the Hogan and the Warrior and the Demolition against Andre and Haku, and really the rest the rest of the card really didn't have a great build up it was just let's pair off everybody as best we can um so it wasn't it wasn't a show where you're like wow is the undercard ever loaded uh again it was more i think that for us it was the big spectacle and we've got a pretty good chance of seeing hogan lose so we're gonna go and robert goulet yes robert goulet did the national anthem which was really cool there's a couple neat things this like i guess you guys know the story like this was andre's last match ever shown on wwe television or pay-per-view or whatever mm-hmm. it was never again and you guys know the story with piper and the makeup right with what andre and arnold scolan did you mean with uh with piper yeah 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 were I mean, they, that... were they they piper apparently had the solvent to get the black paint off and they took it poured it out put water in it and so piper had to live with the makeup until it just kind of wore off naturally he couldn't get it off what what was the reaction like to that those series of promos at the time out with the Piper and Bad News Brown? Yeah, yeah, it was it was intense. But you know what? Way honestly, it wasn't like it would have been today if you tried to do it today. Uh, I mean, in the terms of the wrestling world, it got a it got a little bit of you were like, whoa, that's a little too close to the bone. But I don't know. It was just still hot. So hot at that point, people thought a lot differently. I think when he came out with the, you know, the makeup at the actual match that I think really took people. I think people kind of just went, okay, you're taking this a little bit too far at, uh, (laughs) at that point. I, even I'm kind of like, okay, whoa, that's, you know, I, I understand you're the heel. I'm like, but that's, that's exactly the baby phase. Oh, that's right. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Bad News Brown. Yeah, yeah. So that was, yeah. Not, it's, uh, it's quite the transition mouth where they go from uh, Piper coming out in that mini ring in blackface, and then they cut to a sign, uh, Piper for Prime Minister. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, well, Mouth, uh, I was glad that we were able to uh, put this together last minute to to get you on here, but I want to give you the, uh, the chance. Uh, all that's uh, going on with you, uh, you do a weekly show covering... AEW and everything else at Sunday night's main event. Where can people go check out everything? Mouth yeah. Yeah. If uh, you want to check out, we have our own uh, Patreon as well. Uh, so we have the, the flagship show, which at the moment is just the podcast after what happened with uh, T 
TSN with and Bell just e- evaporating stations uh, like just with a wave of a hand. So the broadcaster that we were on, uh, 1050 out of Hamilton, uh, it was a TSN station, that doesn't exist anymore. It's I think it's Bloomberg, Bloomberg News. News now. Yeah, yeah so uh, we kind of got – we're working on getting some other stuff together. But, yeah, the, the best selection right now is to get on the Patreon, and you'll get the flagship show, which is hosted by Jay and one of us of the group every week. Uh, yeah, there's also the podcasts that Jay and Mark Andrada do, uh, reviewing Raw. There's also the one that, yeah, myself and Joe Aguinaldo do, uh, reviewing AEW, which is a lot of fun. Um, we got lots of other good stuff there, too. My regular show on CIUT, which if you're in the Toronto listening area, CIUT is the University of Toronto radio station, uh, 89.5 uh, FM. I have a show on there every Tuesday at noon called uh, Dr. Mouse Rock and Roll Lunch Party, uh, which is a lot of fun. We get to play a lot of crazy music and stuff like that. So got that going on. And if you become a Patreon, you get access to that show as well. Uh, so lots of lots of stuff. I got my YouTube channel where I like to review weird records. Uh, it's just youtube.com slash Dr. Mouth. Um, yeah, that's about it. Uh, thanks. How, how do you think Revolution's going to do on, on Sunday? Oh, man, I have to say... I'm I'm quite I mean I don't know I think it's crazy that they're doing the exploding death match but I also understand that I think AEW wants to be um the promotion that offers you every kind of match I think they want to be they want to do something for everybody on in every match so I think that's why it's there but I I think it's going to do pretty well I like I mean, I'm I really enjoying AEW. I think the characters are great. I think the storytelling is fantastic. Um, it's just so simple in certain things. I really love their kind of hybrid of taking uh, the, the great stuff from the past that's kind of been ignored now and then mixing it with all the kind of stuff that's happened in the last maybe 20, 30 years and creating this whole new product. I really, I really like it. So I'm, I'm quite looking forward to the show. I think there's going to be a great um, a matches on it. And I'm very excited by the, the chance to work with new Japan guys. That, that, um, that really gets me excited that I could maybe see like Minoru Suzuki on an AEW show. So uh, I, I think they're doing great. I, I hope this show uh, does well, but myself, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I thought they've done um, a good uh, a job building up most of it. I'm a little wary for all the stuff with Shaq, um, but you know, with Paul White now, maybe they can even make that work. Who, who knows? We'll see. Well, Mouth, thanks so much. It was great to catch up with you. Go back to WrestleMania six so that we could get uh, a firsthand account of, Children brought to tears by watching Paul Kogan <laughs> it will be almost almost get his shoulders down for a count of three. Almost. Yeah, exactly. It's funny though, John. Honestly, I I but I've never seen a reaction like that any other time ever. Like John Cena losing, no. Like no one that would be associated again with young children had that effect. Like that to me was really amazing. I you know I just I didn't realize how much it connected with young children at that time. Well, I I did see several TNA pay-per-views where you were near tears, but it was different. <laughs> That's a totally different thing. Different yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mouth. It was uh, great catching up. All right. Take care, guys. That was Dan the Mouth Lebransky, who was live at WrestleMania 6. So go follow all of his great work. And, Way, before we end things off, uh, we've got feedback, and we also got some thank yous to deliver. Where do yeah, you that's go? right. Uh, let's do our feedback first here. Okay, let's start with 
Jay from Windsor. This show is my earliest memory of wrestling and the first pay-per-view I ever watched. I remember being at a family event and someone put this on, and I was just mesmerized by Hogan and Warrior. I'm sure many fans will shit on this match for a lack of work rate, but to a seven-year-old kid in 1990, these two figures were larger than life and felt like megastars. I don't really remember the rest of the card too well, but I will never forget the feeling I had during that match. It was such a cool time to be a wrestling fan as a kid, even trickling into school where kids were divided between Hogan and Warrior. I still remember the school hallways filled with Hogan and Warrior backpacks at the time. With the exception of the explosion in 1998, this was easily the era of wrestling that felt the biggest. I also want to add one thing that newer fans who are going back to watch these shows will never feel, is that during this time period, there were not TV matches every single week between the stars, so seeing two major stars faced off felt like a huge deal. Warren Hogan at this point didn't have 15 mixed tags on Raw prior to the show. They faced off in the Rumble, then this. Bottom line, at the time it felt special, which just doesn't translate if you didn't follow the product at this time. 8 out of 10, based purely on nostalgia and personal bias. It's it's really hard to like you know compare the standard of today to to back then because so much of it is different and especially like what they can get away with the simplicity of this program this feud between Hogan and Warrior compared to like what we get today is so different because the demands are so different they don't have hours and hours of TV to fill to to tell these stories. Well, that was um, the story with I mean one of the really great WrestleMania buildups was that year for Triple H and Batista which part of the success of that was the fact that that was their first showdown. And years later, Batista said like they had to go fight them because they wanted to do the match on TV first before WrestleMania. And they knew like, we can't touch until mania. And, but that was the pressures that they were under. And you're going to get a lot of talent that are sometimes, you know, they probably can look and say, this is probably not the best thing for the program, but I don't have that power to stop things. And it's, that's probably even more so now. Like we, Come off of like a Drew McIntyre Sheamus that I am sure their ideal platform for this big blow off match was not an unadvertised match to kick off an episode of Raw. Yeah, everybody I think envisions, you know, like the pacing of something like this Rock Warrior or sorry, Hogan Warrior thing. But um, there are a lot more demands and there's a lot more money to be made now with every single one of these TV shows. It's It's a very different beast. Let's go up next to... Alex from Portland, who says, last year I had a lot of free time on my hands, so I decided to watch all of the WrestleManias I haven't seen before, starting with WrestleMania 1. My biggest takeaway for 6 came from the main event where Hulk Hogan lost at Mania for the first time. The match with Andre the Giant at WrestleMania 4 doesn't count. I didn't grow up watching wrestling, so Hulkamania never appealed to me, but seeing Hogan book so strongly in the prior Manias made me want to see him lose badly. Similarly, I didn't grow up watching Warrior matches, so he never appealed to me either. While Hogan and Warrior were perhaps the two biggest names in the WWF at the time, they were far from the two best in-ring competitors on the show. Gorilla called this match the irresistible force meaning the immovable object, and I couldn't think of anything more appropriate. Warrior was very immovable during the match, and Hogan wrestled just as good as the irresistible force Nijax, albeit with a better leg drop. Besides the main event, I found the show very forgettable. No must-see matches, no classic WrestleMania moments. Outside Hogan and Warrior, what I remember most from this show is Mary Tyler Moore and how uninformed and disinterested she was. My first review of the show earned WrestleMania 6 a 2.5 out of 5, but after second watch, I give it a 4 out of 10. Questions, what were the best and worst matches on the show? Even though I complained about Hogan and Warrior, I felt like they had the best story, but from an in-ring standpoint, no match on the show stood out to me in either a good way, good or bad way. 
Uh, worst match, really take your pick. Like, yeah, it's, dude, it's like there's a drop down menu of options. Best, I, I mean, I, I depends what your qualification of like best is. I think you know of the matches, the only ones that really are worth watching are it, the only one worth watching is Hogan Warrior. I can't say that about any of these other matches. Um, Sapphire, Dusty, and uh, I, I like the mixed tag for what it was. Like it's it's no classic, but I, I thought it worked for what they were trying to set out to do. But yeah, it's it's a very short list. I, I would recommend the main event, and beyond that, um, even even Jake and Ted. Like technically, it was fine, but you had a terrible finish, and I think it was, yeah, not not anything great. Uh, he also asked, "How do you feel about the ending on this mania? While Warrior beat Hogan and became a double champion, the moment didn't feel as big as it could have. Warrior won by not being dominant, but by dodging Hulk's finisher and hitting his own, which Hulk kicked out at three. After the match, Hogan is focused upon heavily, and after winning the title." Warrior had about four minutes to celebrate before the show ended. I, I think we kind of covered all of this. Um, you know, I, I thought I thought it was you no, know, it was it felt like the coronation of a new top star. I I thought it didn't lack any of that significance. Same. Uh, Kyle from Kitchener writes, "I was live at the show, but despite being nineteen at the time, I have very few memories of it." I remember before they went live, the announcer asking us to be really loud to show the world how happy Canada was to be hosting WrestleMania. And I remember the Hogan Warrior match. I don't think it can be overstated how huge that match was to me. A face versus a face. Title versus title. I had never seen anything like that before. The match didn't disappoint me. But I look back now and realize how much the quality of wrestling has gone up. I have zero memories of any other match. So I look forward to your review. Maybe you can shake some more memories loose from this now 50-year-old brain. I hope we could do that, Kyle. I hope we could bring you back to the uh, the classic that was the Rockers versus the Orient Express or Big Boss Man versus Akeem. We got a Johnny who says, This was a gauntlet of a show to sit through, so I felt the best way to support the two of you was to also sit through this three-hour, 35-minute event myself, if for nothing else but to show my loyalty. Well, thank you for that, Johnny. <laughs> who do you prefer, Gorilla or Bobby Heaton or Gorilla and Jesse? I think for me, it's the latter. I thought Jesse was a tremendous color commentator in this era of WWF. I enjoyed both, but yeah, I, I, I always enjoyed Gorilla and Jesse. I thought that they had a really good uh, chemistry together, and I thought that it, it all depends on kind of what you're you're looking for. I think that Heenan, Heenan had a really great ability to both be serious when it came to going over the heels, but also be really, like, to do the comedy stuff with, with Gorilla. That, yeah, you got some with Gorilla and Jesse, but that really wasn't their forte. It was more of a... It was just a different kind of pairing. I feel like I grew up more like, you know, closer to the tail end of like Gorilla and Bobby. So like that is a team that is more maybe of my taste. But I, the more I go back and watch Gorilla and Jesse, the more I like them. So I really think they're they're both excellent. He also goes on to say, I think for shows in this era, we would be remiss if we didn't bring back the Scott Putzke Award, which R Rick Rude was sh shredded. But I think it comes down to Jimmy Snuka and Warrior. I'd be surprised if these two didn't show up in the Toronto Area control center. They were so large. <laughs> I my pick is Snuka. John, what do you think? I, I I don't know if there's a rule that you can pick anyone but Ultimate Warrior on some of these cards. <laughs> so that would be my where I lean. Jesse from the six. Uh, in the Roddy Piper biography, he admits that painting himself half black was stupid, and he regrets it. It was some weird idea he had to show that he could represent white and black fans. As a kid, I didn't see this show until a few years after it occurred, so I just thought he was doing some Braveheart tribute. 
Uh, mentions Jimmy Corderas here. Was Jim Duggan trying to play heel or was he really as stupid as Ventura suggested? Watching Warren Hogan makes me wonder if wrestlers haven't made a huge mistake. Guys do 450 splashes onto thumbtacks now and don't get half the reaction the test of strength got on this show. Well, test of strength isn't going to get you a gigantic reaction either, unless the circumstances require it. Uh, he brings up here that in Piper's book, he mentions that Rick Martell was booking the Hawaii territory in his mid-20s. So Martell must have had a good mind for the business. I've seen some of his matches on All-Star Wrestling from 1980. Uh, goes on. I've never seen Martell's work as AWA champion, but it seems to me his potential in the WWF was higher than mid-card heel. Do you agree? If so, what held him back? Uh, with Martel, it was not so much, um, you know, he was he was slotted at like a decent role as a heel. But, you know, you've got to remember, like there was, you know, Martel was, you know, size wise was not going to be that gigantic heel um, that I think it was like there, there was, you know, a ceiling to where he could go for a very talented performer. Um, but I think that they ultimately saw him cast as first as part of a, like a babyface tag team and later as kind of this, this mid card heel. And I think that had as much to do with it about, um, you know, what his ceiling was going to be, at least in a WWF environment. And he says, WrestleMania six is often seen as the last mania of the eighties boom period. How was business at this time? Was WWF already in a steady decline or did a precipitous decline take place later in 90 and early 91? Uh, more so the latter. Like, you really don't see things significantly decline until, like, 91. But this really is, like, the tail end of that period um, where you can see, you know, the transition to Warrior. It was, you know, it was very tough for him to follow Hogan, and they went back to Hogan the, the next year. But at that point, I think it, it still had not addressed the initial issue, and that is, like, we have gone with this top babyface for so long that by Hogan winning the title in 91 and then you know you at that point it did feel like this character you were trying to go backwards rather than forwards with it and it goes to the fact that you do need to always have that steady flow of new stars to create and that would be a big problem for them going into the 90s to find who would be that next person to carry the company and you'd have fine champions, but it really was not until the Austin period that you had a game changer that could carry the company to such a degree. But, you know, WrestleMania six is like the company is still very healthy here, but you're starting to see that decline that would realize itself the next year. Finally, we go to Rob who says, this is one of my earliest wrestling memories. I was born in March 28th, 1983. So I was only seven years old when this came out and a ticket to WrestleMania six on April 1st, 1990 was the best birthday present a little Rob could hope for. Since it was on April 1st, my dad started the day by lying to me, saying he had to give away our tickets to one of his friends that really needed it. Oh my I god. Prompt, I promptly went to the kitchen, sat on the floor, and started crying uncontrollably. April Fools! Oh it was just a joke, but I carry the emotional scars to this day. <laughs> to the event itself, everything felt huge. I'd been to a few house shows at Maple Leaf Gardens in the late 80s, but the size and scope of the sold-out Skydome was amazing. I got a hacksaw foam 2x4 and a WrestleMania shirt, or sorry, and a Hulkamania shirt that was too small for my chunky 7-year-old frame. That being said, I was no fan of Hulkamania. I was one Warrior Nation before that was a thing. I don't have a lot to recall of the show itself. I remember how loud the Bolshevik sing was on the loudspeakers and how great it was that Canadian heroes, the Hart Foundation, got the win in such a strong and fast fashion. 
I remember how blurry and ant-like everyone looked from the 500 section. I can only really make it. I can only really make Hogan's bald spot an orange-yellow blur. But the energy was electric, and I remember the incredible fireworks display for Warriors Coronation as double champ, which was breathtaking. Dad made up for traumatizing me after the show with a steak on a Kaiser from the Dairy Freeze on St. Clair, a greasy spoon institution. Until the birth of my son and my wedding day, April 1st, 1990, had been one of the happiest experiences of my life. Thanks for reviewing this, and I hope others, maybe a little older than seven-year-old me, share their live experiences of title versus title, champion versus champion, WrestleMania six. From the six. Steak on a Kaiser would probably make up for some of that undercard. Steak on a Kaiser. Um, I think filet mignon would have to <laughs> be it for me. Well, that wraps up uh, all of the feedback on a monstrous edition of Rewind Away. This is, this is going to be a marathon one way. You know what? Uh, it, it was a marathon show. Um, deserves marathon discussion. So I uh, hope you guys enjoyed. Add this to the list of uh, WrestleManians that we've done. So again, a thank you to our Espresso executive producer, Cesar Silvera, and other Espresso executive producers that we want to thank for helping make this show possible. John Sino, Keyshawn Amarali, Sean Levine, Brandon from New Jersey, Robbie Eleanor, Robert Brocky, Brian Dillon, Diego Figueroa, Jake Simpson, Robert Holtzhammer, Tyler Crane, Ryan Charco, Jonathan Pine, Charlie Bustillo, MCF, Alex Francois, Daniel Holmes, David Porges, Chad Olson, Jay from OSW. Jay, I was going to pick up right after you. Sorry, I was just I was rolling there and I forgot to stop. Jay from OSW, Bruce Lord, Ian Kushner, Justin Killian, Cody Staples, Chris from LA, Brent Nickel, Mahmoud Al Mardi, Andrew McDonald, Chris Thunder, Thorsten Wendelmuth, Robert Frith, Jason Hagholm, Paul De Los Santos, Eric Marcotte, Neil Flanagan, Tony Arthur, Dom from Naperville, Joshua Martin, and Charlie Rizek. And that takes us to the calendar as we are going to be looking ahead to Rewind Away, number 82, that will come out Tuesday, March the 16th. Our executive producer is John Sino from Shot in the Dark. And what has he selected? He has chosen Evolve 1 all the way from 2010. These are shows that have recently been added to the WWE Network, and we're going to go back to the very beginning of Evolve with a main event headlined by Davey Richards, Taking on Kota Ibushi. That will be a fun show to go back and watch. Easily accessible on the network. Two hours in runtime. Let's, let's see what else is on this show. Okay, why don't you pull up the curious. card? Um, as I mentioned, uh, because of the way the dates fall this year, or uh, this month, we have three rewindaways this month. So after today's show, we'll do Evolve 1. And then on March 30th, uh, we're going to be reviewing the Brian Pillman Loose Cannon documentary on the WWE Network. So those are your three rewind aways for the month of March. So on this show, we have Bobby Fish taking on Kyle O'Reilly. How about that? Cheech versus Chuck Taylor. Eric Cannon versus Ricochet. The Dark City Fight Club consisting of John Davis and Corey Chavez taking an mm -hmm. arrow form. Flip Kendrick and Louis Lind Linden. Mercedes Martinez versus Nia. Silas Young, Brad Allen, Jimmy Jacobs, Ken Doan, Johnny Gargano, Chris Dickinson, TJP, Munenori Sawa, and a six-man tag team match comprised of Shakara Sekigun taking on Akuma's Army. Brody Lee on the show. Yeah, this will be a wild show to go back and talk about kind of the formation of Evolve and how 
Gabe Sapolsky came up with this concept and what the original vision for Evolve uh, was, because it would definitely take different iterations throughout the company's uh, evolution over the next decade. So that will be the review on March the 16th. So a big month here at the Post Wrestling Cafe. Uh, on Monday night, we went over some of the highlights this month, uh, but also to note for cafe members that on Saturday, April 3rd, it is Post Podcast Day. We're going to be going live for six hours, and it's going to be six separate shows uh, throughout the day, beginning at noon Eastern with a live Ask Away uh, with myself and Way as part of post-podcast day. We'll be announcing the other shows and personalities involved, uh, but it'll be a stream available to all members of the Post Wrestling Cafe uh, for some live shows from the Post Wrestling Network. Also coming out this week, of course, we have Rewind, a SmackDown with me and Kat from Montreal this weekend. It's a live edition of Rewandavision, 10 p.m. Eastern on Saturday with me, WH Park, and special guest Nate Milton. And all week long, 50% off of our post-Marvel tee exclusively for patrons at store.postwrestling.com. Just use the coupon code that you have in your email or at postwrestlingcafe.com if you want to log in to grab that. All right, that's going to wrap it up. We hope you enjoyed Rewind Away number 81 as WrestleMania 6 is now in the post-wrestling history books.